This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 12, which will be the end of my first year of podcasting. 12 episodes under my belt. And as I mentioned in the last one, we've successfully got it funded to do another 12 starting very shortly. But that's for another day. Let's just get right to the topics at hand, starting, as always, with recent games that I have discovered of note. And actually, i got to say, this is going to be a very, very short list this time, in large part because, of course, I just did my last podcast a couple of weeks ago, so not many new games have popped up on the radar. In fact, I've only got three to talk about right now, so this is going to be over pretty quick. But then we'll be able to move on to the next subject, so let's just get right to it. Game number one that sounds very, very cool, very, very exciting to me, is Lagranja No Siesta. Now, you may have already seen that I did a run-through for Lagranja. Was it last year? Was it the year before? I don't really remember, but oh my gosh, what an amazing debut game that was. Absolutely phenomenal Euro resource management uh, farming market simulation that Jen and I absolutely fell in love with. And a big, big part of that game, in the, in the middle of every round, there was a dice draft. And I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but dice drafting, dice drafting, I just love it so much. It just keeps popping up. And Legrandha was one of the first places, one of the first modern board games that I had seen dice drafting play a major, major part. Now in that game, it's only one small piece of the overall game because there's so much going on in Legrandha. But now, Legrandha no siesta which is not an expansion which is what i originally thought it's a standalone game that takes the dice drafting and builds an entire game around that so how phenomenal is that and that's interesting too because it seems like most of the dice drafting games i've been talking about recently are you know bigger medium weight games or you know kind of uh, special one offs like uh, fuse is a real time cooperative dice drafter this is going to be really interesting because it's a lighter, quicker, smaller, shorter game that is just all about getting a fast hit of dice drafting. And, as I already said, it worked so well in its big brother. I cannot wait to try out No Siesta. Should be really, really awesome. Lagrana. No siesta. Next up, game number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Oops. Actually, I'm a big fat liar. Look at that. I've got four games to talk about today. Oh, do you, are you excited? Look at that big, huge uptick in games. I just went from three to four. But number two is... I'm not really quite sure what its title is. It's either Virus T or just virus when actually and this is interesting i'm going to be doing a run-through of this game next week because it's going to be going on kickstarter and my 
prototype just showed up. In fact, I'm hoping on playing the prototype in a couple of days at the International Tabletop Day celebration, which is going to be happening in Malta. I'm going to have to drive two hours to go over to the mainland and head down to Valletta, and there's this group of gamers that invited me over there, so I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to take this, and I'm going to play it with them. So I'm very, very excited to give it a go. It is a real-time cooperative dungeon crawl game. Which, you know, you, you've seen me do... I mean, I, I've, I've covered some other ones like Project Elite and, um, is, you know, a, a big old game where you're fighting off hordes of bad guys in real time working cooperatively. Of course, Escape, Curse of the Temple, and Escape Zombie City. Those are also real-time cooperative games with a whole big exploration mechanism tied in. Virus is another one in that line. But... It's got some interesting stuff going on. Like Project Elite, it basically has two halves. It has the real-time half, where players are running around as quickly as they can, trying to use their action points to do what they need to do. And then the game pauses for a turn-based portion, where the bad guys act. This was a phenomenal experience in Project Elite. It's really great to have this kind of ebb and flow of really intense, ah, go, 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 go! And then, okay, everything slows down, and let's see what happens. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this terrible stuff happened. So, I've already seen it work really, really well. What I like about this game, more than anything else, it's it's got some neat, cool stuff. I've read the rules. I haven't played it yet, but I like uh, a bunch of things in it. But the cool thing is, the monsters that are chasing us around, I believe it's a military base, and we are there trying to find the antidote to the virus that has basically turned the world into, you know, zombie central, you know, that kind of trope. Um, so we're trying to save the world, you know, trying to find the antidote, the cure. We're running around through, you know, in this tile-laying exploration game where there's bad guys chasing us around. Every time we do an action in a given room, we have to put a cube, one of our action cubes. On our turn, I think it's 10 action cubes we have, and we, um, whatever action we do in a given room, we put a cube in that room. And that might be just, oh, we're going to explore to the next room, we're going to move on, or we're going to open a door, or whatever it might be. And so as we move around, we're leaving this trail of cubes on the board. And that's interesting, but what's cool about that is when it comes time to the monsters' turns, as the monsters are trying to decide, you know, because it's a co-op game, you know, they have an AI system, they actually will move. If if they don't see a player, and you know, they'll just make a beeline for that player, they actually make a beeline towards the cubes because that represents them sensing us or having heard us move around. And I just think that's such a brilliant mechanism that this kind of visual onboard representation of, you know, a scent we've left behind or sound we've made that draws the bad guys to us. That is just so clever and so intuitive. I absolutely love it. But then there's like another really cool twist to the game as well. Like I said, you're leaving these cubes on the board, and that's you know creating a trail for the bad guys to follow you. But you also need to hold on to these cubes. You want to do actions by leaving them on the board, but you need to hold on to these cubes because when you do end up finding yourself in a fight against the bad guys, there is a combat board. And you're going to take the action cubes you haven't used yet, or that you've saved specifically for combat, and some cubes that the bad guys have as well. And you have this kind of mini dexterity game where you take this handful of cubes and you toss them onto the combat board. And it's kind of like there's a bunch of different bullseyes on this board. And depending on where the cubes land, either you get hurt or the bad guy gets hurt. So the more time you spend leaving cubes on the board, which means you're going to get tracked down, 
down, the less cubes you have in hand to actually be able to fight when they catch you. And then you've got this dexterity game put into a real-time cooperative game. It just sounds phenomenal. I am so excited about this game, which on BoardGameGeek is just called Virus. Although, like I said, when the designer contacted me, he called it Virus T. So I'm not really quite sure if that was out of date or if BoardGameGeek is out of date. Either way, it's going on Kickstarter soon. I haven't tried it yet, but I will be trying it very, very soon. And I'm really excited to be able to get to play it with a bunch of people instead of only with Jen. So that was my number two game. Heck, by the time you know, you can watch for my run through coming for that soon. Number three. Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And I probably shouldn't mention this because we're probably not going to get to play it for a while because it's going to come out in German first and then eventually English speakers around the world will be able to play a translation of it somewhere down the road. What is it? It's from Cosmos, and I don't really care about the Cosmos release because I won't be able to play that, but I care about the Cosmos Thames release when it gets brought over to English. It is Legends of Andor, The Last Hope. Or Die Legend von, the, the Legenden von Andor, Die Letzte Hoffnung, which I believe is Last Hope, if I recall correctly, from my high school and college German days. And this is the interesting thing. Apparently, this is the end of the Legend of Andor trilogy, which I never even knew. Apparently, Michael Manzel, you know, the amazing artist, one of the best board game artists working in the industry, who happened to also create the, this incredibly wonderfully designed Euro-style adventure game, so good that it won the Kennerspiel des Jahres the year it came out. You know, big, big game. Um, He'd always planned this as a trilogy, and the trilogy is now coming. Um, so, I don't know. On the one hand, I'm really, really excited to see more. The last one, Journey to the North, which introduces sailing and all that, and it hasn't come out yet. It's coming soon. Uh, it's a standalone game. I'm very excited about that. But The Last Hope apparently has us traveling to the south. And I'll be honest, there's not much information about it right now. And even if there was, I don't think I'd pay much attention because it's so far off from English. And I just know this is a must-have game because Legends of Andor to this day is still so absolutely amazing. So I'm absolutely certain Legends of Andor The Last Hope will be incredibly amazing too. And one more game of note to mention in this podcast. It's very, very cool. I'm probably the last person to report it because uh, news got leaked Gosh, at the Gathering of Friends several weeks ago when somebody posted a picture they took of a prototype, it is Codenames Pictures, which, I don't know, I'm sure it'll be absolutely awesome. I'm very, very excited for it because you already saw Jen and I, we di together did a run-through of Codenames. In fact, you know, if you go check my run-through of Codenames, it's not just me and Jen playing, it's the entire internet. Because we found a way to be able to play it live during one of my live playthroughs. And uh, the internet would either team up with me to give clues to Jen, or would, what was it? Or Jen was giving, or teamed up with me to try to interpret Jen's clues. Either way, Codenames is a wonderful party game, probably party game of the year, really, that happens, unlike pretty much all other party games, to work phenomenally well as a two player game. And so it's definitely one that Jen and I have kept around because we can play it with anybody, but we can enjoy it. This is a fun little two-player co-op. And now, a picture version of it is coming out where instead of having a grid full of words that the clue giver is trying to come up with the perfect phrase to encapsulate so your, their team can figure out what they're trying to be directed toward, now the grid is a bunch of pictures. And you know that's all I really know, although probably that's all you need to know. Should be very, very cool. Very interesting as well. Probably a smart move for the publisher because it's effectively language independent. It's pictures instead of words. How clever is that? 
I don't know if they're really going to change anything about the formula or add anything new, but the base game is absolutely great. So I expect this to be wonderful as well. And that is Codename Pictures. And that's it, folks. Like I said, a very short, very quick new games of interest. Uh, Next time, I imagine there'll be quite a few more because I'll go for a month in between podcasts instead of just a couple of weeks. But that's going to be it. Now, if you'll hold on for a second, I'll be right back with our second segment. Hold on before we go on to the next topic. Breaking news. One more game of interest. It just came in probably a couple of hours after I finished filming the games of interest. So I've got one more to talk about it. Oh my gosh. I am super stoked about this. Although to be fair, it's not going to come out until 2017. But I'm sure it'll be on Kickstarter on 2016. And I'm hoping I get to play a prototype of this because oh my gosh, I could not be more excited about the next game coming from Jamie Stegmeyer of Stoneminer Games, Charterstone. Here's the dealio. Well, first of all, there's not much, there's very little known about it because it's just gotten announced, but it is a worker placement Euro style game, and Jamie's made some excellent ones of those with Viticulture and Euphoria, so he's going back to that well. But it is a legacy game. It is a game where the worker placement happens in a, it begins as a small village, but as more buildings that you can place your workers in get added to the village, they're permanent. They stick around. After you finish playing the game, the village has grown and it'll never be the same again. And then when you start the next game, you're building, you're continuing to build a village up over multiple games. I think it is announced that you get basically, I think it was 24 games of this you get as you're adding and building and growing. And I'm sure some things get lost. I'm sure there's earthquakes and you have to cover up. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm hypothesizing. I don't know. There's not that much information. But apparently, yeah, you'll get 24 total games as you play through this legacy-style campaign where you make permanent changes to the board as this village grows into a town, into a city. I don't know, but oh my gosh, I'm so excited about that. And then the beautiful thing is, much like Risk Legacy or Pandemic Legacy, which I've talked about in past podcasts, you've now then got a personalized board that you can keep playing. Um, And it tells forever the story of... Of, of that legacy campaign. This is what I've been waiting for. This, I think, bumps up over Gloomhaven. Maybe even, yeah, 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 bumps up over my excitement level for um, Star Trek. What was it? Uh, Star Trek Legacy, I think. Is, uh, yeah, the, 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 the Mage Knight Star Trek game. Star Trek Frontiers. Oh, man. Charterstone. I mean, because I mean, Jamie... He's a good designer. He's made two excellent worker placement games. So I know he's going to be comfortable in this. I can't wait. I am so excited. So that's it, folks, for uh, new and exciting upcoming games of interest. And now, let's uh, put a pin in it for a little bit, and we'll be right back. Okay, so how about some top ten recaps? I've got two topics to talk about, and then I'm all caught up. Top 10 exploration games, and then top 10 solo games. So let's uh, hit exploration. Let's explore, shall we? So there were a few games that got brought up several times by several people, so I'll mention each one of them one by one, starting with The Seventh Continent. And in all honesty, that's a really, really, really good suggestion. In all honesty, I suspect... I've not played the final version. I've only played a prototype, but I suspect that one would probably make my top 10 list 
if it existed. Of course, I'm not going to list a game that hasn't actually been commercially released yet, and certainly not one that I haven't actually played the commercial release of, but I do suspect that one could actually make my top 10 my top 10 list. And uh, next up, a bunch of people asked, what about Archipelago? And you know, fair enough, Archipelago is a very, very cool game. But I'll be honest, as much as I love it, and if you've ever watched my run-through of it, you know the reason I didn't keep it is because Jen hated the negotiation. I thought it was a really brilliant game. So many really cool, neat systems and intertwined mechanisms. And I love the negotiation, but Jen hated it so much that it was not a keeper. But I'll be honest, if there was one thing in that game I did not like, it was the exploration element. Because I found the the, the halfway decent chance of getting nothing for your trouble. In a game where you get to do very few actions, to um, attempt an exploration and then draw a random tile and find, oh, I'm sorry, this doesn't fit anything. So you get nothing, nothing! Just, you know, that never actually sat that well with me. I was never really all that crazy about it. And I know, you know, the game did some good stuff to help mitigate that. You don't have to risk because you see, before you draw the tile, um, one side of it. So if you're really worried, don't explore unless you can see that it's going to be fine. But even still, I'm just not a fan of that. Hey, yeah, sometimes when you explore, you find cool stuff. And sometimes when you explore, you literally waste your time and get nothing. Ugh. Probably, by and large, though, the game that got mentioned more times than any other was Robinson Crusoe. And now, to be fair, Nick put it on his list, and with good reason. I talked about that in the run-through, but repeatedly, over and over and over again, people kept asking, why isn't it on my list? And, you know, I don't know, I thought I was pretty clear when I did my run-through of Robinson Crusoe years ago that it was not a game Jen and I wanted to keep. And while the exploration in that game was phenomenal, as a a contrast to Archipelago, loved it. It's probably my favorite thing about that game. Well, no, no, I love the really cool set up a card now, put it in the deck, it'll show up later and, and explode on you. I mean, I think that's so brilliant, but the exploration in that game is great. But there are so many other things. And I talked about this in the video, so I probably won't. But I've got to say, I mean, that got mentioned so many times by so many people uh, that... Oh, wait, oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. That's right. Nick actually mentioned Robinson Crusoe in his top 10 solos. Right. So people kept asking. I'm sorry. Uh, why isn't it on your exploration? I'm sure it would be in Nick's. And with good reason. Oh, boy. I have, that's the problem with doing two... <laughs> Two lists back-to-back. Yes, it's not on my list, not because it's not a phenomenal exploration game. In some ways, exploration is the best thing about that game. It's just not a game that Jen and I kept. Jen and I didn't like it for different reasons. Uh, We both respected it, thought it was really great. It just wasn't a keeper. That's why it's not on the top ten exploration list. Let's see, uh, a bunch of people asked, or not a bunch, a few people asked about to call. And yeah, you know what? I suppose... Strictly speaking, that is an exploration game. I mean, and in fact, actually, I like the raw mechanisms of, oh, yeah, the base board just has, you know, dense jungle. You can't see what's there. And when you explore, you start just putting tiles down face up, and you, got to, you get to find out where all the temples are, where all the treasures are. But I don't know. I mean, the expo- it doesn't really feel very strongly of exploration to me. It is, and it's a great game. But I know that game really feels so much more about deploying your workers and doing the area control. The exploration feels like a very, very small part. So that's why it just didn't really occur to me to put on the list. And uh, several people asked about Lost Valley. I'll be honest, I've never played it. I've never really been that interested in it because it's always seemed very Ameritrashy to me. I mean, I suspect I wouldn't like it for the same reasons I don't like 
Robinson Crusoe. But I, I'm sure it's a great game because so many people love it and it got its big reprint recently. But I don't think it's ever going to be one that I would actually seek out. So that was it. I mean, there wasn't that much to say about exploration. It was a pretty cut and dried thing. I think most people were satisfied with the list. But certainly the much more interesting topic was Solo. A whole bunch of people mentioned a whole bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know... Not just about the topic, but also the video itself. And I do have to say, that was a blast. I really, really, really enjoyed getting to sit down and do that video with Nick. And I think we mentioned this in the video. The original plan was, while I was in Florida for the Dice Tower stuff, I was going to make the time to swing by. He was about an hour away, an hour north. I think he was an hour north of Jason, who was an hour east of Tom or something like that. But anyway, my plan was to meet up with him and we were going to do a video together. Actually, the original plan was we were going to do Imperial Settlers because he's a huge fan of it and so he was going to be able to talk. It was going to be a normal thing, but then we talked about, hey, maybe we'll do the exploration thing. But then it just, it was not going to work out. There was not enough time during my brief. I was there, what, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday and then I left early Monday morning. So it just wasn't possible. And... But I still want to do it once the topic had been broached, so we just you know, arranged a time. It was not the greatest time because it was crazy early morning o'clock for me, but I've, I wasn't even remotely sleepy for the whole thing. I could have kept talking for another three hours. I thought all of his picks on the list were phenomenal. And as I said in the video, I think on the whole, his list is probably stronger than mine. But I guess that's not surprising because he's more of a solo gamer than me. But as to... the oh, actually, oh, I was about to say as to the actual contents of the list, there is one more thing I should say. And a couple people brought up, and I have mentioned that I apologized profusely. I was so... Mortified. I have no idea why I made that little <laughs> jab at Nick's weight, the, the, the fat Nick joke. I mean, he took it in good stead, and you know, he's joked about it himself in the past. And I, I, I can only blame the fact that I was, it was three o'clock in the morning, and maybe I wasn't quite as mentally with it as, because that wasn't cool at all. And, oh man, I'm just going to apologize once more publicly. That was just not a cool joke. Even though he was funny, he was cool and gracious about it. I don't know what I was thinking. Ugh, I'm mortified. I should have just edited that out, but no. I will not hide. I made a mistake. Everyone can see it. All I can do is apologize. That was dumb. Apologies again, Nick. But anyway, so as to actual solo game experiences. Well, hey, I've, um, I, I kind of... Uh, uh, several people mentioned Robinson Crusoe, um, and, and as I said uh, just a bit ago, Nick did put it on his list. I did not, but I talked about that why. I just got my exploration and my solo list mixed up. But, funnily enough, people asked about Seventh Continent. And it's interesting, Seventh Continent, in all honesty, I don't know this for a fact, but I look at it and I'm pretty confident Seventh Continent was designed from the ground up to be a solo game. And then they retroactively put cooperative gameplay mechanisms in on top of it. And I suspect it is at its best as a solo game. And, um, you know, if I ever do get the commercial version, because it's going to be crazy expensive, I, I wouldn't mind trying it solo. Although, Jen, I enjoyed it enough as a co-op that I don't think I'd get a chance to play it solo. But I do, yes, it's probably going to be one of the best solo games ever. Uh, let's see, what else we got? Oh, a bunch of people asked about the Harvest Trilogy. Or the gallerist, or actually a, a whole spate of big heavy euros. And I thought I did a pretty good job in the video, but maybe I didn't of explaining why 
Um, those didn't make my list. You know, games like that. One, because I'm not looking for a long solo experience. It can't be more than a half an hour, by and large. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I kind of made the exception for Star Trek Expeditions because it's Star Trek and it's really good Trek. But generally, I don't want to play a solo game that's longer than a half an hour. So that just cuts out so many. I mean, that's why Gates of Lo Yang is a phenomenal solo game. It really, really is. But I don't want to play it that long. And, but then the other reason is because Gates of Luoyang is another example of a solo game that's just about trying to beat your high score. And that is not interesting to me. I want to feel still like I'm playing with an opponent, even when I'm playing solo. And so many of the games that so many people asked about just didn't work for me because it, they fell under that aegis. Oh, several people asked about the own, um, the Onurim verse, Shady uh, Torbay's, you know, Onurim and Castilian and uh, oh gosh, what are they all? There's there's like three or four of them, uh, Sylveon. And uh, why 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 didn't those make the list? Actually, I don't think they made uh, Nick's list either. I can't speak for Nick, but for myself. I think they're great games. And I know that they are designed, first and foremost, to be solo games. And uh, not everybody's a big fan of the fact that he then kind of retroactively puts cooperative mechanisms on top of them. But in all honesty, of the ones I've played, I think he's made them really, really cool co-ops. And I think they are cooler as a co-op experience than they are as a solo game. I have actually played um, Onurim as a solo game, and it works really well. It's a really great little solitaire game. Works very nicely trying to find the keys and all that, but I enjoy it more as a co-op. than And so it, it just didn't even occur to me. Actually, that's not true. I did think about them, but no, they just didn't make my top ten. There are plenty of other games I'd rather play solo. His games, I'd rather play cooperatively. Oh, uh, the Lord of the Rings, the card game? Yeah, that's a phenomenal game. And yeah, I could certainly see how it's a phenomenal solo experience. But somebody would have to correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong about this. But I believe you do have to play... That's a game where you do have to play the two players... You have to take on two players' roles. And in that game, you're already, as a single player, having to control three characters. So as a two-player game, having to control two different techs and six characters, I've just dismissed that out of hand. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. And people can correct me if I'm wrong. That you know, Maybe the game does work well as a truly solo experience where it's just me and my one deck up against the game and I take my three characters and my deck I've built. If that's the case, I'm not giving it fair time. It... I've never tried that. If that's in fact the case, that one could potentially make my top 10 list. Even though it's a bit longer than a half an hour, it is a really good game and I really do enjoy it. So, yeah, I don't know. It is. It's so Byzantine though, all those rules. But it's so good and the the flavor comes and the art is so, I don't know. I guess I'm on the fence about that one. Let's see. A few people mentioned Samurai Spirit from Antoine Bauza. And I don't know about that. I, I suspect I could see how it would be a good solo game. I totally can see that. But the one time I played it was in Gen Con a few years ago. And I had such a... I don't know. I, I didn't really feel like it was taught very well to me. And, and, and it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I don't know if that's the game or if that was just the circumstances. Um... It was certainly wasn't the people I played with because they were all nice. And we, you know, we all did our best to have fun with it. It just didn't really click with me. But, I don't know, maybe someday I'll try it again. Uh, oh, a Race for the Galaxy. That's actually very interesting to me. Because, you know, it's weird that right at the same time that Nick and I did this, within, what was it, a day 
of that, Z Garcia of the Dice Tower put his top 10 solo games up. And of his list, he really intrigued me by the notion of Race for the Galaxy. I guess one of the expansions, which I don't have, let's, turns it into a solo game. That might be very interesting. Unless, of course, again, it's just a play to get a certain high score or you know hit certain score targets. In which case, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, we've got Imperial Settlers. And in all honesty, I am shocked that that didn't make Nick's list. Because I know he loves that game so much. And in all honesty, I suspect it is probably an amazingly good solo game. But I do believe it's one where you play to score. And so that's it's out for me. And another reason, I mean, I wouldn't... The game was no good for no bueno for me and Jen as a multiplayer game because of the all the cutthroatedness. So we just weren't interested. And there's no way I'm going to keep any game on my shelf with my limited shelf space for a game that I would only ever play solo. That just doesn't make sense. I guess that's not true. I do that with Space Hulk Death Angel, but you know what? I I can keep on dreaming that someday Jen will actually play that with me. Fingers crossed, someday. But I know we'll never play Imperial Settlers together. Ooh, this is a really cool one. This is an interesting topic. Um, Viticulture. Several people mentioned Viticulture, but it's not just that. Pretty much all of Stonemaier Games are an interesting concept because Stonemaier Games has a guy dedicated to making virtual opponents for their games. And in fact, while I've only played, uh, what do you call it? Between Two Cities as a solo game once. I did it just to learn the game and see how the bot worked. And I thought the bots worked great. I know I'm not saying they worked great enough to make my top 10 solo list. There are plenty of other solo games I played before that. Because I, you know, for that to work, you have to play against two bots. But those bots worked so well. And so many people mentioned Viticulture with its bot as a solo game. That really piques my interest. Really quite a bit. A lot, a lot. And in fact, so much so that I kind of regret. I recently did um, trade away Viticulture. It's no slide of the game. It's a great worker placement game. Jay and I both like it. I just got rid of it because it was a gigantic box. It's twice as big or twice as wide as a normal box. And I couldn't in good conscience keep it when I've got so little shelf space. I got rid of it only because of its box size. And now that people have started telling me how great it is as a solo game, and I can imagine it probably is because it seems like the Stonemeyer bots solutions are really, really good. So I really regret now not having gotten a chance to try it. But So that was interesting. Uh, oh, uh, Hostage Negotiator. Uh, yeah, that was a nice little game. But again, I'm not going to keep around a solo game that's only solo. Same problem with Friday. And, uh, oh, oh, oh. This is an interesting thing. This isn't about... I mean, I mentioned in my top 10 solo games, Dungeon Roll. It's funny. Uh, uh, the day before Nick and I did it, I actually got Dungeon Roll out and played it a couple more times just to make sure I still consider it worthy of being in my top 10, and I still love it as a solo game. Um, so I, I stand by that. Even though it is a high-score one, it really does feel like you're playing against people because you're playing against all the monsters you fight. So it's great. It's great, 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 great. Probably one of the most criminally underrated games to have come out in the last five years. Ooh. No, actually, that's right. I think I have done a top 10 underrated games, and that was before Dungeon Roll. I, if I do an update, Dungeon Roll makes my top 10 most underrated games, period. But here's the interesting thing. Every time I ever talk about Dungeon Roll, people always start talking about how, yeah, okay, I can see it fine as a solo game. Sure, sure, you convince me it'll be fine as a two-player game, but as a four-player game, forget it. Too much downtime. 
Here's the thing. I just want to put this out there in the universe. You want to have an amazing four-player game of Dungeon Roll? Easy. Buy four copies of Dungeon Roll. Now, I know that's not cheap, but Dungeon Roll is a very, very cheap game. Even buying four copies is going to cost less than one full game. Buy four copies. Give everybody their own hero and their own hero dice, but have everybody go up against the same dungeon. So, you know, everybody does their level one, um, you know, and, you, and you see what it is, and everybody has their own party of heroes that has to deal with whatever the dungeon throws out. So you just roll for the third floor of the dungeon once, these are the three dice, and then everybody has to use their own hero dice to come up with their own solution for beating level three, and then level four, and then level five. Oh my gosh, that would be so amazing! That would make dungeon roll an amazing four-player push-your-luck fast filler game. And... I don't know that anybody's ever tried it. I'm definitely wanting to get another copy of it so I can so if Jen and I, whenever Jen and I play it, we play it that way so we are literally raiding the exact same dungeon at the same time. That would be so phenomenal and it would completely get rid of the the only valid complaint I believe that people have about dungeon roll that there's a lot of downtime when you're playing with more than two players. So just a thought that popped into my head when people started mentioning it, because I mentioned it in my top 10 solo game. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about solo games... Oh my gosh, Kingdom Death Monster sounds so amazing. So amazing. I am so epically sad about the existence of that game now. I, I, I had known about it. I was aware of it. But I'd always kind of dismissed it out of hand as, well, you know, really, how good could it be? It's clearly a miniatures vehicle. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's clearly very good at that. But, you know, miniatures. I mean, I don't want to play Zombie Side. I don't want to play most cool mini or not games. I mean, that's just the antithesis of what I'm interested in. And then I saw, oh, and it's, okay, it's a big combat arena game with lots of really gorgeous miniatures. Pass. Oh, and it's $400 or, well, you know, however much, you know, pass, pass, pass. But then after Nick started describing it to me, and then I started reading more about it, oh my gosh, that game I think could make my top 10 games of all time. I don't know, because I've never gotten to play it, and I suspect I never, ever will. Because there is no way I can in good conscience pay $400 for one game. Particularly because I don't even want all those miniatures. I don't want to have to spend hours with glue and tweezers and sandpaper putting together all those crazy complex miniatures. I want standees. You're talking to the guy who loves the presentation of monsters and... Um, Heroes in, uh, oh, what's it? Assault uh, on Doomrock, where they're just basically little um, symbols on pogs. I, I don't need all of those big, crazy miniatures, but the gameplay, the campaign systems of Kingdom Death Monster, which had never really been on my radar before, and now it has sh shot to the top of my must-have games list, and I'll never be able to have it. Oh, it breaks my heart so much. It just seems so unfair. And, oh, world's smallest violin. I know there's a lot of other games I'll get to play. Gloomhaven's going to come out this year. It's going to be amazing. But, oh, Kingdom Death Monster seems really, really, really special. Uh, and I, <laughs> I wish I didn't know about it. Um, I, I am full of regret 
now knowing about that thing. Ignorance was bliss, and I am no longer blissful because it exists and I can't have it. And, uh, and not that that has anything to do with anything, really, but it is just kind of something that kind of came onto my radar because I did that top 10 solo with Nick. And it's, it's kind of solo-related, although, man, I think Jen would love it, too. Even though neither of us are going to be particularly interested in all the role to resolve combat in business, um, you know, and, and the other kind of Ameritrashy side, that campaign sounds so amazing. And Jen, her favorite shows in the universe are Survivor and Naked and Afraid and Alone. And, I mean, you know, this laundry list of these kind of extreme survival type shows to have an entire fantasy board game that is based on that concept, that has this huge epic sweep of campaign play. Oh, man, that game just seems so amazing. I need to stop talking about it. It just makes me sad. I'm so sad now. Let's uh, take a break, and we'll come back right after this. Okay, so next up, people have been asking this for a while, and I really should have covered this topic sooner, but it seems like in every podcast up to now, I just... There wasn't time to really go into it, but for those who don't know, back in early March, I flew out to Florida and then Vegas and then Seattle for this epic kind of two-week excursion specifically to do a live game marathon with Tom Vassell and the guys from the Dice Tower. And people have been asking ever since to hear the story. What happened? How did it go? What was it like? Etc. Etc. And man, I'll be honest, I wish I had done this sooner because it's what? It's the 28th of April now. So it's, you know, six, seven weeks since then. So my memory is not really the greatest in the world to begin with. It's kind of Swiss cheesy. And I'm sure I would have done a much better job recounting all the particular little things that happened along the way if I'd done it immediately. But still... I am going to do my best to give you a proper accounting of how everything went down. So, where to start? Where to start? Well, uh, first of all, I have to give a huge shout-out to Swiss Air, who I had never flown with before, but this time I flew with them connecting Malta to Zurich and then Zurich down to Florida. And, my gosh, they were phenomenal. Probably the best international flight I've had in years. One of the best I've ever had. I really think they compete very nicely with Virgin, which previous to them... or And Air New Zealand. Virgin, Air New Zealand, and Swiss Air. The kings of the air. Uh, they, absolutely phenomenal customers service, great flight, and also, thank you so very much, Swiss Air, for getting me an exit row. I have long ago given up on ever, even though I'm six foot three, being able to be even remotely comfortable on one of these flights. I'm always just stuffed like a sardine into one of these terrible little seats that are made for very, very short people, um, generally surrounded by screaming children and people who just want to chat the whole time, but... I had an exit row to myself. I was able to stretch out. It was a phenomenal flight. So Swiss Air gets a huge recommendation from me. Absolutely loved them. But 
once I got once I landed in Miami, Jason Levine, who uh, you know is a regular on Dice Tower broadcast and whatnot, was going to pick me up at the airport, and that is where things started going wrong. Uh, Jason certainly got there on time, but Miami International Airport is a fairly big place, and there is a lot of spots that could be picked up. And as it turns out, Jason ended up waiting quite a while at a pickup area that was a perfectly reasonable place for him to assume I was going to be. But it is not where I was, of course. I was on practically the other side of the airport, and I didn't really have a good way to contact him because once I got there and I tried to put my American SIM chip into my phone, and I knew, okay, you know, I'd already kind of worked it all out ahead of time. I was just going to plug the chip in. It was going to be a working phone. Everything was going to be fine. Didn't work. Of course it didn't work. So I had no good way to contact him to tell him, Jason, this is where I am. Um, Now the nice thing is, Miami Airport has free Wi-Fi. So what I ultimately ended up doing was connecting to the Wi-Fi and then using Skype on my phone to try to call Jason. But that was a nightmare. Because if you've ever tried to use Skype on an iPhone 4, not an iPhone 4S, because Jen and I, well, we can't afford all those new fancy-fangled iPhone 4Ss. We're still stuck on a 4. And Skype just destroys your phone. It just can't... The phone cannot handle it. But I did, very briefly, for a couple of fleeting seconds, get Jason on the phone. And I tried to describe where I was. And I he didn't understand what I was saying. And I didn't really understand where he was. And then... So I, I tried to step outside... To, you know, to, to give her an idea where I was. And the Wi-Fi dropped because it didn't reach outside of the terminal. And the, the call got canceled. And then I went back in and I couldn't... And my phone crashed. And if you've ever had an iPhone 4 crash on you, it takes forever for it to reboot. So... You know, this ridiculous comedy of errors is going on. I mean, we've, you know, I've been here for almost an hour now. He's been here for almost an hour now trying to pick me up. And... We just can't connect. And eventually, this very nice girl who was working one of the... I don't know, you know not, not Bellhop, but basically one of the places where people can deal with luggage drop-offs or car pickups, something like that. She saw my desperation as I was trying to contact Jason any way I could and said, hi, 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 uh, do you want to use my phone? And she just let me use her mobile phone and I was able to call him. And then uh, I still couldn't tell him where I was, but she told him where I was. We got together and... Uh, So that was not a brilliant start. But Jason was a good sport about the whole thing. And then we, uh, you know, at at this point, you know, I'm completely exhausted. I've been traveling for 20 hours straight, no sleep. I cannot sleep on a plane. Even if I get the exit row all to myself, I just can't sleep sitting up. I can't do it. So I'm exhausted. But Jason had already worked out that he and I were going to have dinner with his parents at the Cracker Barrel which I have never been to in my entire life, although for non-American listeners, Cracker Barrel is an American eating institution. And somehow I'd never... So I kind of wanted to go, and Jason's parents were already there waiting for us, and even though I was more than happy just to go to sleep, and I wasn't even remotely hungry, I, it was nice, and, and I had a great time. Jason's parents, who live in New York but were basically visiting him, I think, for a few weeks because of, you know, they wanted to get away from the cold New York weather, so they were staying him, uh, staying with him until it kind of warmed back up because, you know, hey, you come down to Florida where it's warm, and then you go back to New York when it, when it, when it warms up there. So they were staying with him. We had dinner. They were nice, lovely people. I'd, like I said, I'd never been to Cracker Barrel, so I felt like I had to try all the crack. I mean, I don't know. I don't get it. People love, they just go on and on and on about Cracker Barrel dumplings. 
they were nothing to write home about as far as I was concerned. The biscuits, though, oh my gosh, they were so good. Oh, why can't you get good, proper, American-style biscuits in Europe? Anywhere! Oh, I'd give... What I would give for some biscuits right now, they were so good. Although I also was not too terribly crazy about the honey butter, which is another Crackle Barrel staple. The regular butter and those biscuits, wow, so good. And then I tried, what was it, chicken deep-fried in buttermilk, which was interesting. I don't know if it was necessarily better than just regular deep-frying, but that was all cool. Uh, Jason's parents were... uh, a laugh riot. They are hilarious people. I really enjoyed chatting with them. You know, had a good time with them and Jason, and eventually went to sleep. And you know, I needed to sleep as fast as possible because the very next day, I mean, I was arriving Friday night, and we were going to be doing our marathon gaming session the very next morning. So I was more than happy to get to sleep. Woke up the next morning. Of course, I woke up crazy early at four or five because um, couldn't go to, couldn't get acclimated that quick. Just did stuff online and whatnot. Eventually, Jason woke up and we chatted with their parents. There was, you know, well, Jason is a typical gamer geek bachelor. There was pretty much no food, um, you know, other than like boxes of wheat thins. And um, were there pop tarts? I know there was a lot of Quaker's oatmeal. I forget which, you know, like brown sugar flavor or something like that. You know, that's basically the length and breadth of the food that was available. And while his parents were visiting, they were all just eating out all the time. And I'm sure that's what Jason does most of the time. Because, you know, he's a single guy with a lot of disposable income. And so he eats out. Um, you know, I guess if his girlfriend ever moves in, things might change a little bit. And he might get a little bit more home cooking. But So I woke up crazy early in the morning, starving to death. And I think I did have a box of Wheat Thins for breakfast that morning. And what the heck has happened to Wheat Thins? They taste nothing like what I remember from my childhood. I used to love Wheat Thins. And so like, I was, it was crazy early. I had nothing better to do. So I spent a lot of time just kind of... If you, well, if you ever get a chance to go to Jason Levine's house, he has a ridiculous game collection. Thousands of games. They're all in kind of this converted... I think at one point it was a garage, but now it's kind of a converted, uh, you know, climate-controlled room. Just shelf upon shelf upon shelf. I mean, I have been to many, many, many local, you know, friendly local game stores that don't have anywhere near as much product as Jason had. It was mind-blowing. So that was a good way to pass the time. And eventually he got up and we drove out to Tom's to do the big marathon gaming session. Now... I don't think I have to talk too terribly much about that because the whole thing was recorded live. You can see all of it unbroken. It's about nine hours long in two videos. You can find it easy enough just by doing a Google search for Rotto Dice Tower Live Marathon or something like that. You can watch it if you want to sit down for nine hours. There's not that much to say about behind-the-scenes stuff, because it was all in front of the scenes. It was on camera. You know, we got there, we chatted for a while. You know, I met Tom's family, which is I don't even remember how many girls, but they were all very polite. His wife was lovely and very gracious and accommodating. But I I didn't spend any time with him. I just came right in the house, just went straight upstairs, and pretty much spent the entire time in his little, you know, gaming sanctuary, his sanctum sanctorum. And we were there for probably 11 hours straight, of which we recorded almost 10 hours of video footage. So, I mean, to talk about that, well, I guess really what I could do, because a pair of people have asked, what did I think about all the games we played? So, hey, there's a chance to talk about some games. Let's start with Nitwit, which nobody at the table had played. Tom had just recently gotten it, and I think it was, uh, you know, he had only read the rules that morning, so he taught it. We played it really quick. We played a quick game. 
I thought it was nice. I have to admit, I have very little experience with these sorts of party games. So everybody else seemed to think that, yeah, it was okay, but there were much better examples. I thought, wow, this is really kind of cool and clever. I've never really experienced anything quite like it. So I don't know that I really have much to say other than what I did say in the video, which is it felt like there needed to be some arbitration guidelines in, in the rules to be able to help more clearly define what a proper answer would be, because it seemed like the system could be gamed a little bit. But I thought it was actually very, very cool, even if, as it turns out, I radically cheated. I totally cheated, because Tom forgot to mention one key part in the rules description, which is you can't use the same answer more than once. And in one round, I used the same answer for every single possible thing. Um, everybody enjoyed it. I mean, I think everybody had a good time, so that was fun. The next thing we played is Dream Factory, or uh, Traum Fabric, as it's originally called. And this is a much older Reiner Knizia auction game, where everybody is the head of a movie studio. And uh, we're engaging in round after round after round of auctions. The auctions work very cool. They're very clever. I don't think they'd work all that well with two, but... Um, it, we were playing with a big group, so I think it was kind of played in its ideal circumstance. And you're trying to auction to get the right directors, the right actors, the right scripts, the right equipment, the right special effects, um, and all that to make the best movies possible. Um, you know, by combining the, the right stuff, and whoever makes the best movies wins the Oscars and all that, and wins the game. And, you know, it was interesting. I've wanted to play this game for quite a while. Actually, I should say, I should actually back up, because... For the record, every game we played that day, ostensibly, was kind of picked by me. Because what had happened, a month before, Tom and I were writing emails back and forth to each other. And Tom asked, well, hey, what are you interested in playing? And I spent an hour looking through all the games he had on his, you know, because he keeps a track of his collection on BoardGameGeek. And I sent him a list of, I don't know, must have been like 20 or 30 games. I'm like, okay, I'd like to play this, or this, or this, or this, or this. These would all be phenomenal. And um, you know, so he used that as a starting point. And then you know, when I got there, he had actually, of those ones, he had chosen the ones that he thought would make for the best actual video. Or, you know, because, because of course, we we're going to broadcast live, and you wanted to make sure these were fun, entertaining games to watch. So, like, actually, I, 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 well, I was just mentioning, I, I actually found the list. Here's the list of stuff I had sent as suggestions. I would have loved to play Galaxy Trucker, because I've only ever played it as a two-player game. Um, any of the Space Cadets, you know, Space Cadets or Space Cadets Dice Duel. Deception, Murder in Hong Kong, Good Cop, Bad Cop, Dream Factory, Xenoshift Onslaught, Battlestar Galactica Express, or the new Stronghold re-theme. Dungeon Fighter, Bang the Dice Game, Dragon's Gold, Witness, Baseball Highlights 2045, Marvel Timeline... Resistance or Ultimate Werewolf, uh, uh, Trains and Stations, Star Trek Fleet Captains, Space Alert, Deception Murder in Hong Kong, Wits and Wagers, For Sale, etc. Every one of those things are games that, under normal circumstances, I would never get a chance to play because most of them don't work very well with two. And, of course, that's the only way I play games. So I was like, I want to take advantage and play games that I normally would not get a chance to play. See, where is it on this list? Oh, and then also I mentioned... Um, by the way, you know, so those are the ones I was really interested in, but I also mentioned in passing, well, you know, considering my audience, I'm sure a lot of people would like to see you and me play a Euro. Um, you know, and you know, so none of those things I listed were a Euro. And so I thought, well, maybe we could do Lancaster or Carson City, because I thought both of those would be interesting Euros because they have a lot of player conflict in them and stuff like that. So you know, there's a lot of one-optionship. So that's the list I sent. And from that list, Tom made his decision. And obviously, on the list was not Nitwit, because that was a surprise. He had only just recently gotten in the mail. But so Dream Factory, the reason I had wanted to play that 
was because I've heard Tom many, many times over the years talk on the Dice Tower podcast about his own personal homebrew edition where he has replaced all the generic kind of parody stars and directors and movies and um, Hollywood studios and whatnot because the game doesn't use any licenses. It just used placeholder stuff. He'd replace them with all real-world stuff. So when the, while you're playing the game, you could end up making... Jurassic Park, directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and written by George Lucas, or whatever. You, know, you can make these really crazy, weird things, and it makes the game a lot more. And I thought that sounded a lot of fun. I'd always wanted to try it. Plus, I knew it wasn't going to be a good two-player game anyway. So we played it, and I did enjoy it. And no doubt. Although, in all honesty, I think the design of the game goes on for one or maybe even two rounds too long. I think it kind of overstayed its welcome a little bit. I think it would have been much better if it was just you know a couple of rounds shorter. So that was kind of my feeling about Dream Factory. And, but if I ever were to play it, I don't think I'd, I don't. I, you know, a big part of what made it fun was seeing the weird combination of real world stars and directors and movies and all that. I mean, that really did help the experience a lot. Next up was The Resistance. And you know, if you, that list I just gave you, I had made mention of a lot of these kinds of games because I've never played a hidden traitor trying to deduce who among us is you know, wanting to stop us all. And so he went with Resistance. We actually played two games of this. And the second round of it, um, I know got a lot of hits, a lot of views, because Jason very famously had a total and complete meltdown. On camera. At one point, Tom said something about, well, you know what, I'm ready just to throw this particular game just to ferret out because I know you're the guy. And it's like, you know, he said something like that just kind of in jest, but it really set Jason off because he was already really into it and he just exploded. He got, I'm not going to say violently angry, but almost flipped the table angry and just had this big emotional outburst and started shouting at everybody. And everybody at the table was just... Because, you know, this is being broadcast live at this point to hundreds and hundreds of people. Everyone's seeing this. And everyone's freaking out. And I was sitting right next to Jason. I had no idea what to do. I was totally mortified. So I felt so bad. Oh, my God. He's going to be so embarrassed when he calms down. And this is... you know, And... And, you know, just to kind of try and lighten the mood after it was all over, everybody was just sitting there, you know, shell-shocked from this outburst. All I could do is I just kind of gave him a hug. And, you know, and, and so people kind of, and, you know, he, he calmed down and whatnot. And so, and then we continued playing the game. And, uh, and it was fine. And then at the end, the thing that was so brilliant is it was revealed that it was all an act. Jason wasn't upset at all. He was the traitor, and he was trying to sway us all to his side. And you know, he pulled out the ultimate card by um, you know playing um, the innocent, you know, the, the the good resistance member who was so frustrated because Tom was willing to throw the game because Tom gave him that opportunity by making that joke. And Jason pretended to not get the joke and thought think he was serious. It was a brilliant play, and it's really weird because afterwards, if you go to Reddit and whatnot, a lot of people posted a link to the the live stream, but just to the timestamp where they can see Jason having his meltdown, and people just watch the meltdown, and they say, ah, that Jason, what a tool. How could you do that? Because nobody recognized the fact that it was actually a really brilliantly acted, game-winning play. And that was absolutely amazing. So I was really glad. After I was not glad at the time. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, but, you know, when it finally came out, it was, I, it was actually really, really cool. Very, very well played on his part. So that was actually really interesting. And then we broke for the first half after playing a quick game of Marvel Cards. Hardline. 
And I'll be honest, the only reason I'd want to play this is, well, because I'm a huge Marvel Comics fan, and I have been for my entire life. I've been reading comics since I was a little kid, and although I will admit, actually, Marvel is dead to me now because the post... Um, what was it? Secret Wars. Hey, let's reboot the entire universe. And you know, it's the the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot kind of thing. I've always been so proud of Marvel that they would never do all the shenanigans that DC has done so many times over the years. And now Marvel has done it too. So I'm I'm done. I, I don't read Marvel anymore. But um, you know, this was before that it happened, and or maybe it wasn't. But anyway, still, I'm a big Marvel geek. I you know I love. Um, uh, Trivia. I I spent nine months of my life working on you know a big, very, very uh, true. It was going to be canon Marvel video game. It was going to be based on Secret Wars. It was going to be the third Secret War, which was going to be so much better than the Secret War that actually was. And so I was so looking forward to flexing my Marvel trivia muscle because Tom is also a huge Marvel comic book fan. And in all honesty, I think only Tom and I were the only ones at the table having any fun at all. I don't think probably most people watching were having that much fun because it was just me and him knowing pretty much who all of these characters were and just flexing our you know our trivia buff knowledge while everybody else is just kind of floundering around. Oh, I've never heard of this guy. I don't know. I guess he's this smart or whatever. And so I enjoyed it, and I won. Or actually, I tied for first place with Z. Um, but... I, I, I really enjoyed it a lot, and I'm glad I got a chance to play it, because that would definitely be a game I would never play with Jen, because she could care less about it. Anyway, so that's where we broke. I think that we were at four hours or so, and then we went to lunch, and we went to a local Mexican place, and oh my gosh, it was awesome. We all stuffed ourselves with just absolutely delicious American-style Mexican food, because of course that's not real Mexican food, it's American-style, but you know, little mom-and-pop type, uh, you know, Rosita's, uh, you know, family cafe type place, and it, I don't remember the name of it, but it was so good. Oh, everything about it was just delicious. And the problem was, right after that, we all came back and we were all completely exhausted. Every single one of us needed a nap desperately, but nope. We had to get back on camera to continue the game marathon. And what did Tom pull out, um, you know, to help arouse us out of our slumber? The big Euro game of the day, Carson City. And with the benefit of hindsight, that was not a wise choice because that was a long game. I went on for at least two hours, and like I said, everybody was just sleepy time, and you know, just the energy dropped. And don't get me wrong, while it was a good game, and um. I had a good time playing it. It was perhaps not the best time game, and we were not maybe quite as animated as we might have otherwise been. And it was actually interesting, too. Um, you know, I was glad to play it because you know, I've only ever played Carson City, which is, you can see my run-through if you want. I have done it before. It's a worker placement game set in the Old West. And the thing that about it is your players are kind of communally pulling together to build up the town of Carson City, but trying to score the most points by contributing the most and making the most money and everything. So there's a bit of competition. But the interesting thing is your workers, players can place workers on the same spot and have Old West Cowboy shootouts to see whose worker will actually get the thing. And now, of course, this is a way Jen and I never play. We always are just live and let live. And I focus on my minds and she focuses on her saloons and we just see who does best. And so I was really interested to give the game a try the proper way, where players were more than ready to steal from each other and all of that. And the very, very first round, right out of the gate, Jason goes whole hog and tries to take me out. As it turned out later, it's because he recognized that 
I was going for a good strategy that he would have gone for if he could have, but I kind of denied him. So he just tried to slow me down. And it was interesting. So, you know, he, he opened fire. He pretty much completely scuppered my first round and really kind of hobbled me. And at that moment, before then, I wasn't sure. I was thinking, you know what? Maybe I'll try to play in the spirit. Uh, I'll go whole hog. I'll go on ahead and initiate a shootout when I need to. Uh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play the right way instead of the way I would ever play with Jen. But after that big crushing you know, smackdown that Jason gave me, I decided at that moment, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be the peacenik. I'm going to play this entire game never raising my fists in anger to anybody. I'm going to find the way of peace, and I'm going to see if this game is even remotely winnable. Um, and so I spent the entire rest of the game pretty much being a punching bag for anybody who would want to come along and just, oh, were you going to do that? Nope, I think I'll take that. And I'm like, okay, I'll turn the other cheek. And, um, oh, did you want that? Well, no, I think I need that okay, I guess I'll go try and do this instead. And it was a very, very interesting experience. As it turned out, I did okay. Jason ended up winning um, you know, by, by a landslide. And that's because in the last round, everybody at the table got kind of caught up in the, in the moment of... Their, you know, it was like this big three-way shootout for one piece of property. As it turns out, what, you know, it was, remember, we were all kind of punch drunk from trying to make it through this big two-hour epic game on full stomachs when we should have been asleep. So I, I don't think anybody was making a particularly smart move. Three of the five players were going for this one piece of land, and they got so um, caught up on that that, one, it gave me an opportunity to go off and do my peaceful thing, which was basically buy up every single mountain. So... <laughs> you know, my name was going to live on. It's, it was a big part of uh, why I did okay is because I owned every mountain range on the board because nobody fought me for them because they were all fighting over this one bit. But at the same time, Jason stayed away and ended up grabbing a couple of tiles that just right then and there won him the game. And people should have been paying attention because if they had just moved into his area and stole a little bit of his money, he wouldn't have been able to run away with it. But as it is, he was first, Sam was second, um, and then the three of us all literally tied for third, which I thought was a pretty good showing for me. I played the entire game never attacking anybody, going my own way, and I tied for third place. So I was pretty happy with that. But yeah, that was a long game, and it was getting warm, and we were all getting sleepy. So after that was over, we decided to try and um, you know, speed it back up again, and we went to Deception Murder in Hong Kong, which is another hit-and-roll style. Um, one person is the bad guy. Everybody else is trying to figure out who they are. We played two games of it, maybe even three now that I think about it. And this was one that I was really so excited to play. Because Jen and I, we have played Mysterium. And it actually works pretty well as a two-player cooperative game. And um, you know, it, it's definitely better with more. But Deception Murder in Hong Kong is basically Mysterium with a traitor amongst your miss. Instead of one player being the ghost who is trying to you know, give cryptic clues to all the other players so that everybody, all the other players can solve the, the mystery of who done it and all that, that's what Mysterium basically is. And, you know, and, and the ghost player can't directly communicate. Again, you just give cryptic clues. Uh, Deception Murder in Hong Kong, one player is the Quincy-style... Oh, what do you call it? The, the person who works in the morgue, the medical examiner. And again, has to give out cryptic clues to all the rest of us so that we can solve the murder. Because as it turns out, one of us actually did the murder. And that person is actually trying to cover up their tracks and you know, spread uh, deception and confusion wherever they can. And you know, otherwise, it uses a lot of the same mechanisms as Mysterium. We love Mysterium, and so I wanted to give it a try. And i got to say, man, I was a bit disappointed by the game. I really, really was. Not that it isn't cool and neat, but 
the thing is, Mysterium suffers from this as well. Mysterium, as a pure co-op game, there can be times when the cards that come out, um, the random chance colludes in such a way that the person giving the cryptic clues, there's nothing cryptic about them at all. They're just spot on. There's absolutely no chance for any kind of misinterpretation, and the game becomes really easy. Now, in a co-op game, that's not that big a problem. It just means, hey, some rounds it's really easy because it's easy to give clues because of the way things happen. Some rounds it's really hard. That's fine. But Deception Murder on Hong Kong is not a full cooperative game because there's one or two players around the table who are trying to deceive everybody. It's a competitive game. And here's the problem. In a round where, oh, the, the stuff that randomly comes out, it's incredibly easy to be 100... You know, the, the clue giver can, for all intents and purposes, say, yeah, that's the person who did it. That's what can happen. And then the whole game breaks. And that did happen. We actually, like I said, played two or three times. The first couple of times, I was just one of the uh, detectives trying to figure it out. And then the third time, it turned out I was the murderer. And I had to cover my tracks. And that was the game. That was the session where, you know, all the clues, there, everybody gets a bunch of clues in front of them that are potentially incriminating. The uh, medical examiner has to give out vague clues that point to various stuff. And, um, you know, if he's pointing to you because you're the murderer, you have to be able to make an argument naturally and fool everybody that, no, 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 I, yeah, okay, I can see why it looks like that. But trust me, I'm innocent. It's clearly Jen over there. She's the one. Because see, this clue perfectly fits all of her stuff. The clues that they were able to get, it was absolutely unimpeachable. It had to be me. Everybody knew it. The game was over almost instantly, and it was effectively broken. There was nothing I could do. Everybody agreed, and it was just kind of very anticlimactic. And it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. And again, where it works fine in Mysterium, in a cooperative, I don't think it works in a competitive. So I was a bit disappointed. And then the last game we played, it was interesting. Uh, We only had an hour left. And Tom said, well, okay, we can play Dungeon Fighter or we can play um, Port Royale. And Jen and I have a copy of Port Royale. We haven't played it yet. But I know I'll play it eventually, and I figured it was okay for it too. So I figured, let's do Dungeon Fighter. And honestly, I think everybody around the table groaned inwardly when I chose that, except for Tom. um, Because... As it turns out, they all thought it was kind of stupid and dumb and hokey, I guess. I'm not quite sure. Nobody would ever come out and say that, but I kind of got that impression. And I got to say, I'm glad I chose it because it was the final game we played. It was kind of a high energy, it's a dexterity game where it's a cooperative dungeon crawl and to fight the monsters, everybody has to effectively play quarters where you're trying to um, bounce these pieces off the board and then land on a big bullseye. And I thought it was hilarious. And I had a really good time. Even if everybody else around the table was like, this is so dumb, this is for kids or whatever. And I guess they'd all played it a bunch and you know they were kind of sick of it. But... It, for me, it ended on a high. I really enjoyed it. And uh, that was it. That was the day of filming. And after that, we were all exhausted. Didn't stick around very long. Just drove with Jason back to his house. Jason, by the way, lived, I think, about an hour away. So I spent a lot of time in the car with Jason, talking about anything and everything. And most of them were very loud, vociferous I'm not going to say arguments, but let's say debates. You know, debating the relative merit of movies or politics or all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they were friendly. I mean, it was totally fine. We both had a good time. But uh, time definitely flew when we were driving back and forth from Jason's place to Tom's place. And you know what? I think I'm going to take a break right there because I am thirsty as all get out. So... 
That was the main day, but you know that's just barely the beginning. That's just you know I was there for one night, and then the next day there's still I did the top tens and um, tr- getting to Vegas, and then spending a week in Vegas at the Gamma Trade Show, and then going up to Seattle and hanging out with my mom and running into. You know, there's a bunch more, so the story will continue shortly after this. Okay, everybody, let's continue with my adventures in Florida. So that was. Friday night, and pretty much all day Saturday. Sunday rolls around, and the plan is I'm going to play with Jason's game group in the afternoon. We're going to play some games. Then we're going to head back to Tom's in the evening. He and I are going to do a couple of top tens, which I talked about in the last uh, podcast. Yeah, that's what I'm doing, a podcast. And then we were going to fly out to Vegas the next morning. So we had quite a good deal of time to kill until we were going to hang out with Jason's friends. And so he and I drove around. We had some shopping to do because I had a bunch of... Whenever Jen or I go back to the States, there's always a bunch of shopping we have to do. We always have to hit Walmarts. We always have to hit Targets and Lowe's hardware stores. And just for the billion and a half things that you just can't get in Europe, certainly not in Malta, but that just are around every corner because... America is the land of milk and honey, and it's just absolutely insane how easy everything is in America compared to the rest of the world. But anyway, so, you know, Jason was really cool driving me around. We went to Cool Stuff, Inc., and, you know, I got to see that. Not the really big warehouse, just one of the local outlets and whatnot. And again, I had a good time. And, you know, i got to say for the record, I've I've said this several times now, I'm going to repeat myself. Huge thanks to Jason. Huge shout out. He was always, you know, up for anything. He was always in good spirits. And I just had a great time hanging out with him. You know, talking about all kinds of stuff, including, you know, his profession. You know, you know, he's an Emmy award-winning um graphic artist. And uh, you know, he's got all these great life experiences of, you know. Working on uh, you know the uh, presidential campaign news reports and just really a, a very very cool guy and you know for folks who think they know or understand who he is based on watching him on the dice tower, well you don't really know him that well and uh, anyway, so we did actually I, I met up with his gaming group and we played a couple of games. Now I talked about this a, a bit in the last podcast, so I'm not going to spend too terribly much time on it. We played Princes of Florence and Traders of Genoa. So, go back and listen to podcast 11. <clears throat> Skip the part where I cry a lot, um, and uh, you can hear what, uh, what I, how that went. But they were a great group of guys. I had a fun time with them. And actually, probably the, the, most, the biggest thing to talk about while I was there was the fact that we uh, had some pizza. They ordered a bunch of pizza, and oh my gosh, I gorged on that pizza because I, I don't remember the name. It was just some local chain of pizza places. But man, oh, I so miss American pizza. It is well, I'm not gonna say it's better because that's not fair. It's you know, it's it's the pizza I grew up with. I mean, because American pizza is so different than European pizza, just so night and day different. And to for my taste, so much better. So I had tons and tons of pizza. Had a great time. Played those games, and then so. We then drove out to Tom's place because uh, Jason and I were going to do our surprise secret top tens with him. 
uh, with uh, Tom. And we had been so on the go, so busy, that I had barely had any time to actually prepare my top 10 economic games and top 10 pickup and delivers. And I have to admit, I was still working on those top 10s minutes before we started filming. And again, I talked about the top 10 topics themselves uh, in the last podcast, so there's no reason to go into it now. But that was great. Uh, And what's interesting is what happened afterwards. Because the plan was the Dice Tower crew was going to be spending a week in Vegas covering the Gamma Trade Show. And I and, and I figured, you know what, heck, I'm gonna be in America, right? I'm flying to Vegas or I'm flying to Florida, and my plan is from Florida to then go to Seattle to be able to hang out in Belfair, visit my mom for a week, and you'll know, help her with various stuff. And when I first start looking into booking these flights. I very quickly discover that it is literally hundreds of dollars cheaper instead of flying directly from Miami to Seattle, fly from Miami to Vegas to Seattle with a layover. It just gets so crazy cheap by comparison. And so that's why I actually arranged this entire trip to be able to go to the Gamma Trade Show because, heck, when else am I going to get to go? I might as well check this thing out. And Now, I'm not going to spend that much time talking about the Gamma Trade Show because, of course, I did a run-through of it. It's an hour long. I talk about the experience, and I demonstrate the experience. I show the experience. But to talk a little bit about what was going on that that was not directly to the Gamma Trade Show, here's the plan. Tom, and apparently Tom does this with all Dice Tower convention expedition type stuff. He makes this big shared spreadsheet where everybody who's going, um, you know, marks down when they're going to arrive, what it is they're going to do. You know, it's this big schedule where he tries to wrangle everybody. And he invited me on this because he knew I was going to be out there. And so I'd be able to use it to coordinate with them and all of that. And I'm like, oh, that's very, very cool. I can, and my plan is, hey, you know what? During this week, I'm, I'm just going to be an honorary member of the Dice Tower. I'm just going to hang out with these guys all the time. And, and I, heck, I'll even do reporting for them. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever. It's just going to be fun. Because I had no particular expectations going in. But here's the first problem. Tom had booked himself and Sam and Z all flying out of Miami at crazy early o'clock. I forget what it was. The flight left at like... Five in the morning or something like that. Or I forget, maybe a little bit later, but still very, very early. And here's the thing. There was another flight that was leaving later in the morning, like nine in the morning. And Jason lived an hour away. And you know, I knew I was going to be staying with Jason. And I didn't want to have to make him wake up crazy early in the morning to get me to this crazy early flight. Uh, and you know, and then he'd just have to go about his, you know, his daily life. That just didn't seem fair. So even though I knew all the Dice Tower folks were going to be flying out on this early flight, I booked myself on the later one. Never mind the fact that it was actually cheaper as well to fly on this later one, to fly on, what was it, Spirit Air instead of American Airlines. And uh, because we meant Jason and I'd be able to sleep in, and that was all cool. But then Tom actually decides, unbeknownst to me and him, he did had no idea that I had made this plan to try and make life easier for Jason. Tom decides, you know what? Let's have Jason come out too. And so all of a sudden, Jason is on this crazy early flight also. I'm like, ah, great. So now, because I'm with Jason, I'm going to have to get there to crazy early anyway and then just hang out at the airport for three or four hours waiting for my flight. Because I couldn't care. And it's like, ugh. So I'm unhappy about that. But... That problem led to all of us talking about, well, you know, getting so early to the airport is going to be a pain for everybody. So how about we do this? Everybody stay at Kenny's place. Kenny is kind of a, uh, is is a regular with Tom's 
Gaming Group. He's actually appeared, I believe, in some of Tom's 24-hour marathon game sessions in previous years. So you can look for him. Um, he's a really nice guy named Kenny. And uh, he lives very, very close to the airport. He has a little, I think it was a, was it a one-bedroom apartment? I think. Yeah. Not even, it was a one-bed, one-bath. Maybe there was two beds. I don't remember. It was a very, very tiny apartment. And, uh, uh, you know, Tom had worked out with him that, hey, me and Tom and Z and Sam and Jason, all of us will stay at Kenny's the previous night. So, because he lives five minutes away from the airport. And so, this is the plan. We all, you know, and, and Tom is traveling, the Dice Tower guys are traveling with tons and tons and tons of equipment because they're going to be doing all this live streaming broadcast. Me, I just travel with a camera and a microphone, that's it. But they're traveling with all this equipment and tripods and, you know, and big display stands and, and um, you know, all the streaming and blah, blah, blah. So um, they, they get all loaded up, we all get loaded up, we drive out to Kenny's and we brought a bunch of air mattresses. Everybody's going to be, let's uh, see, Sam slept on a... Sam slept on an air mattress. I slept on an air mattress. Z slept on a couch. Tom and Jason slept together in Kenny's bed. Um, I believe they put a sheet between them or something like that. And then Kenny slept on the floor in a closet. Um, on, on, um, you know, on, on like a camping or on a yoga mat or something like that. And it was absolutely insane. Um, you know, there's barely any room to walk. All of us just crammed into this little apartment that Kenny lives in. But Kenny was a really sweet guy. We all wake up early the next morning. Um, you know, they have so much equipment that even though I'm on the later flight, I've still got to go with them because it's two cars worth of dice tower equipment to get there. And, um, Jason didn't want to have to you know, and so they were all going to drive Jason's car and Kenny's car to be able to carry all the stuff. But then Jason, you know, it made no sense for Jason to have to pay for a week's worth of parking. So I drove solely so that I could drive Jason's cars back to Kenny's. And then whatever it was, three hours later, Kenny would drive me to the airport for my later, more reasonable flight. And it was just absolutely insane. And we all stayed up way too late. I think we all stayed up to like one o'clock that night, um, you know, just chatting. And Tom and I chatted quite a bit about, you know, our experiences making games. I had a really great time. It was absolutely wonderful. Again, they're just a, they're a great, fun, lovable bunch of guys. And uh, it was a weird situation. But we get up all crazy early the next morning. They take off on their flight. And then um, I come back to Kenny's. Kenny and I hang around for a couple hours chatting. Kenny was great. I had a good time with that. And then I get on my later flight. So this was the plan, um, according to Tom's big spreadsheet. Uh, you know, uh, they're all getting in fairly early. Um, I'm getting in just a few hours later than them. But they were going to check in. And, oh, Suzanne is also coming. Suzanne's another Dice Tower regular. Eric Summerer is another Dice Tower regular. You know, he's the co-host of the podcast. He's flying in. Um, Chaz Marler is, is flying in. He's coming in later than me. But Tom's plan was when everybody gets in, we're all going to have, like, this big group lunch. And, uh, you know, we'll all get together. It's going to be a lot of fun. Everybody's going to chat. We're going to work out the rest of the week and, and you know, uh, assign tasks. And I'm like, great, that's going to be cool. Even though I'm getting in later, I'll, I'll meet up with them and I'll figure out what am I going to do? I eventually get in and um, they were all staying. All of them were staying at the hotel. It was the Caesars, I believe Caesars hotel where the trade event was happening. And you know, and that's going to be not a cheap hotel. 
And, uh, you know, it was actually, and it was all very expensive because this, the week of Gamma is also the week of, was it some boxing event? Or some big sports event. So, you know, it's very expensive times in Vegas. And I didn't want to do that. So I, going my own way, <clears throat> had come up with a different plan. A very nice Rotto Runs Through fan named David, who was one of the co-organizers of a local gaming convention, MeepleCon, he offered to let me crash at his place for free. And so I took him up on that, and I rented a car, and the car rental was like 15 bucks a day. So for all intents and purposes, rather than paying, I don't know, 120 bucks a night to stay at a hotel and then have to ride taxis all over the place from the airport back and forth, I'd spend 15 bucks a day to get a car, have total freedom to get around, do whatever I need to do, and stay at David's place. You know, a nice local guy, maybe hang out with him, play some games, etc., etc. That's my plan. So I knew I was going to be separated from the Dice Tower crew, but that was going to be okay because I was going to be there for this big first planning day. We were going to work it all out. And so I eventually arrive in Vegas... Get the car. That took a while. Call up Jason and say, right, okay, I'm on my way for the big lunch. Because I was, I mean, I was a little bit worried because I was, it took so long to get the car and the flight was delayed. I was going to be like, I was barely going to make, I was going to make it on time. I just wanted to make sure where it was going to be. And Jason said, yeah, we already had the lunch two hours ago. I'm like, ah! And I'll be honest, that moment, the whole week changed for me. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Because the reality is, I wasn't staying with them. And I missed that big chance to you know, coordinate with them and all that. And so even though my original plan was to be an honorary member of the Dice Tower, after that happened, I was just kind of so bummed that I said, well, okay, I'll see you guys later. And I went my own way. And to be honest, I barely saw them for the entire convention, even though it's a very tiny convention. And, uh, and I'm not complaining. It's totally fine. And I'll be honest. If anybody who has worked with me for 20 years in the video game industry and has had to go you know, on press junkets with me or convention trips with me, everybody knows that I always tend to go my own way. You know, They're all in a group. They all do stuff together. They see movies together. They go out and eat together. I'm always the guy who rents a car and is always off doing something else because that's kind of my nature. I'm... People wouldn't know this. I'm really not that social a person when it boils right down to it. I am kind of, uh, I, I am kind of introverted in all that. So, I had made the choice. No, no, this is going to be my big social gathering group. I'm going to constantly hang out. We're all going to do stuff. We're going to go see Penn and Teller together. We're going to do all these things. And but then, you know, I missed the big meeting. And after it's like, eh, okay, I'll just revert to type. I've got my car, I'll do my own thing, they can do their thing, and I'll say hi, it'll be cool. And that's what I did. It was a really great week. I had a wonderful time. First of all, I have to give another huge shout-out to Real Donuts, which is uh, you know, a, a little mom-and-pop independent donut shop in Vegas. I ate there for breakfast every day. And I'm not saying they have the best apple fritters and buttermilk bars I've ever had, but top five... And I am an apple fritter and buttermilk bar aficionado. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And it was phenomenal. It was a long ways away from the Strip. So fortunately, I had a car. I was able to get there. Um, let's see. What did I eat? I ate, I ate there all the time. I ate at the local Jack in the Box. I Basically, that week, I was able to get all of my junk food cravings out of the way. Um, it was Long John Silver's. 
Oh, I love Long John Silver so much. I love Jack in the Box so much. That real donuts was so good. Um, you know, I, I got to go to a Fry's Super Electronics store. Uh, you know, I got to do all the stuff I wanted to do. And it's interesting. I mean, I didn't really, I did nothing. I didn't know that. I did, I didn't go to any shows. I didn't tour any casinos. But to be honest, Jen and I have been to Vegas so many times. We love Vegas, not for gambling. Neither of us are gamblers. We're not drinkers. We just love Vegas for all the entertainment and whatnot. And we've been, we've done everything. If the Star Trek experience was still there, I definitely would have gone and done that. But since it wasn't there, and since I missed my window to hang out with the Dice Tower folks, I just said, ah, to heck with it. I'll just go my own way. And I had a nice week. Um, let's see. Is there anything else to talk about for that week in Vegas? Let's see. Oh, oh, um, I should talk about Davis. I should talk about um, Gamma, and I should talk about MeepleCon. Let's see. Oh, oh, also, man, I ate so much Cold Stone Creamery. <sighs> Why? Why can't we have things like this in Europe? Cold Stone Creamery is so awesome. The apple pie a la mode. And actually, David, the guy I was staying with, his house is very close to it. So every night on the way back to his house, swinging by the Cold Stone, having... Oh, man, so good, so good. There is no way I would stay skinny if I lived in America. I mean, because it's actually relatively easy to be paleo in Europe because I'm just not surrounded by just absolutely um, mind-destroying temptations like I would be in America. I am weak-willed. I'm telling you that right now. But, oh, I just, I indulged and overindulged. It was a great, great week. But anyway, anything to talk about Gamma that I didn't talk about? Well... No, I did talk about this in the video. It was absolutely amazing, and I'm so glad I got to go. It was so fascinating. The whole week is about game retailers. Not online retailers, all brick-and-mortar retailers. And I sat in on seminar after seminar after seminar of game publishers sitting down and talking with local retailers hearing what the local retailers' issues were, trying to come up with solutions to help the local retailers stay in business and not be completely destroyed by online, you know, bargain basement discount. It was fascinating, and it gave me such a great insight into this whole other side of the business, and I'm so happy I got to go. And it gives me such an appreciation for all... For all of the people on Board Game Geek who bitterly complain about the Asthma Day stuff, I gotta say, I support the Asthma Day stuff because I do believe in trying to keep local retail establishments alive and thriving. And Gamma gave that appreciation to me. If anybody gets a chance to go, I strongly suggest you do so that you can hear the other side of the coin. It's very, every, very easy for everybody to have their consumer side of the coin. But you, I mean, you, to see this pool picture, you got to walk a mile in another man's shoes, and Gamma let me do that. So I'm really, really thankful that that happened. Um, let's see, was there anything else uh, that was interesting that week at Gamma? Did I play any games? No, actually, it's amazing. There were ample opportunities to play games. The whole week, I only played one game, Star Trek Panic. And i got to say, I was a bit disappointed. Not, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's just... If you like Castle Panic, Star Trek Panic is basically just a retheming of Castle Panic with plenty of Star Trek paint. But, I mean, it does some really cool stuff. The notion of the castle, which is now the Enterprise, can actually move and do stuff. There's a lot of really cool ideas, and I thought that was going to be enough because I've always loved the idea of Castle Panic. It's just always been too simple and too easy, and I thought this was going to be it. But nope, it's still very gateway, very featherweight light. We won the game I played without really any too trouble at all, and... So, eh, that's too bad. It's a great game. 
But I will continue to just be excited for Star Trek Frontiers because Star Trek Castle Panic was not the Star Trek board game experience I was looking for. Let's see. Oh, so David's. David's. Uh, David was a wonderful guy. Uh, you know, I, I mostly, I mean, I, I barely saw him or his family. I met his wife a couple of times. He has, I, I didn't meet his kids because they were always off at school. Basically, it was funny, actually. I stayed, I got to sleep in his teenage daughter's room because she's actually gone off to college. So the room was empty. So I slept in there. There, they, she, they had a, another girl who was in, I, was in in grade school. I never met them. They were always on the go. I met David's mother a couple of times, but I was very rarely in the house because I was always out just gorging myself on junk food or um, you know leaving early to gorge myself on junk food for the breakfast and dinner. And I never ate anything during the day. But David himself, I, I did spend some time hanging out with him, and he was a great guy, very charming, very warm, very ingratiating. And I just got to give a, such a huge th- uh, shout out to him and to his daughter for me for giving me a very very lovely, comfortable room to sleep in. Um, although it was really weird. I, you know, I didn't get to meet her. She must be, in high school, she must have been a goth chick because there were Twilight posters all over the wall. And it was weird. Uh, what's the, I can't remember the name of the villain from the Saw movie series, but she had kind of this big wall mural of that puppet guy, his whole face covering the walls. It, it would give you nightmares to sleep in this room, but it, it was cool. I had a great time. And then I, I got to go to MeepleCon. Not much to say about MeepleCon that you didn't actually see in my run-through. So I think... I think that's about it. That's all I've got to say about Vegas. I've been there so many times. I, uh, there was no reason for me to actually take advantage of it. Um, you know, because I've done everything there is to do there. You know, love the indoor skydiving. Done the circus, circus bungee jumping. Jen and I, we, in the years past, we've gone out to, the, to uh, Hoover Dam back before 9-11, back when they actually let you tour inside the dam, which is awesome. I don't think they do that anymore. Maybe they've actually since started letting people do that again. I'm not sure. But that was pretty much it. And everything else i got to say about Gamma, I said in the run-through. So, oh, oh, oh. One thing I can talk about, I did, I did a run-through of MeepleCon, but I actually got to play some games at MeepleCon. So, what did I play? I played Dungeon Pets. And that was not my intent. I really wanted to go to MeepleCon and play games I had never gotten a chance to play before instead of Dungeon Pets, which I've played dozens of times. But as I was walking around, try, looking, scanning for games that I could jump in on that were things I really wanted to play, I saw a group of folks with Dungeon Pets sitting down trying to read the rules. And Dungeon Pets is not a good game to sit down and try to read the rules at a convention. So I sat down, and my intention was just to teach them. But then I ended up playing. And I had a good time. It was, it was a fun thing. But that was half my time at this convention playing Dungeon Pets, which I played so many times. But I did get to play Karuba, and I thought that was very, very cool. I'm not sure if it's as good as Limes, but it was still very cool. And I got to play Baseball Highlights 2045, which is a game I would never get to play back here because Jen just hates the sports theme, never wants to play any of them. That was really cool, too. I thought it was a really clever game. Even though it's kind of an in-your-face game, I very much enjoyed it. So um, I got to play those, recommend them all, and I think that's it for Vegas, baby. Um, nothing else happened, so nothing else has to stay in Vegas. So we, what's the rest of uh, the... Well, let's see. So then I'm flying up to Seattle. And <clears throat> I'm not actually going to Seattle. I'm going to Belfer, which is a little tiny town outside of Bremerton, which is on the other side of the Puget Sound. So you fly into Seattle. It actually takes a while to get to my ultimate destination, my mom's house in Belfair. And that was my intent, to basically just visit my mom because, you know, she lives alone. My dad died a few years ago, 
And whenever I can, or whenever Jen can, whenever either of us get a chance to go back to the States, we try to spend as much time with her as possible, basically just to help her out with, um, you know, whatever problem she's having. I mean, and in my case, that means I spend a lot of time trying to teach her how to use her Android smartphone. Because it's just, you know, it... They, they, they can be very daunting. Or helping her with online bill payments or helping her with um, how to stream in Netflix using her DVD player. All that kind of stuff. And uh, so I had a really good visit with her. But the interesting stuff that happened... Let's see. So I flew up to Seattle. And originally my plan was that I was going to take... I've never done it before, but I was going to take this new express train thing they've got from SeaTac to downtown. And then from downtown, I was going to take the ferry over to Bremerton. And then mom was going to pick me up at the ferry. But um, Isaiah... What's his last name? Vallejo? Oh, I need to look it up. I think it's Vallejo. I think Isaiah Vallejo, who is the designer of the um, Valeria board games. You know, uh, Card Kingdom of Valeria, uh, Quest of Valeria. What's the other one? Valeria Card Kingdoms, Quest of Valeria. And I'm drawing a blank on the other Valeria game. I've done run-throughs for all of them. But anyway. um, Oh, and you know, in in Daily Magic Games, he also does uh, Swinging Jive Cat Voodoo Lounge. Anyway, he found out because I didn't make a secret of it that I was coming to Seattle. He lives in Seattle. And he had contacted me and said, Hey, while you're here, if there's anything I can do to help out. And I'm like, Well, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind a ride to the ferry. And he said, You got it, buddy. No problem. Um, so my original plan uh, you know, got changed. And so he agreed to pick me up at, the, uh, at SeaTac. Which, which was easy peasy. He was right there. By that time, I had my cell phone working, so it was very, very easy to coordinate and all that. And uh, he picked me up. And I'm so thankful he did, because that meant I had the chance to get a Dick's Deluxe Fries and a Vanilla Shakes from Dick's Drive-In, which I had not had for I don't know how many years. And it's my favorite treat in the world. Dick's Deluxe Fries and a Vanilla Shake. It does not get any better than that. And so, um, Isaiah was, uh, was a really great guy. Where did we go? We went, to, we went to the one on Broadway, I think, which I have to admit is not my favorite. University District is still my favorite Dick's. Probably second favorite is Queen Anne, particularly because it's so close to uh, uh, Blue Highway Games. But, you know, it was fine. Uh, Broadway was still good. It was delicious. It was so good. Uh, I, you know, it was everything I remembered it being. And uh, now here's the crazy thing. As it happened, you know, the original plan was he was just going to drive me to Dick's. We were going to drop me off the... But there was some unpub board game convention happening in Portland that weekend. And he was already planning on doing a road trip, driving him and his wife and their newborn baby from Seattle. It was going to be a kind of a fun road trip for them down to this thing so he could attend and, you know, and, and see all the latest games at the unpub and all that. And so he had rearranged his schedule... So that he was not going to drop me off at the ferry terminal, but instead he would drive me from downtown Seattle all the way out to Belfair to my mom. And oh my gosh, it was so wonderful because, you know, because then from there he was just going to keep on driving south to go to Portland. And so I did. I, I basically spent two hours in the car with him and his baby and his wife. And oh my gosh, it was such an amazing two hours. His background, like mine, is in the video game industry. He was a video game producer for years. His wife is Russian, and um, 
was, you know, it was, it was a young woman who started up her own video game developer in Russia. And that's how they met. He was the producer on her games. They worked on mobile games. And, uh, you know, you know they, they met, they fell in, they dated, they fell in love, they got married, she moved over to America, he got burned out of the video game industry like I did, and he retired and became a video ga- or board game developer in much the same way I retired and became a board game whatever the heck I am. And his wife moved over to America and she still runs her independent game development studio in Russia by telecommuting. And, I mean, my gosh, it was so fascinating. We had all this same kind of shared background, and I had such a great time talking to her about Russia, about modern Russia, about growing up in Russia, about hearing the Russian side. I mean, you know, we've all... I I know not everybody listening to my show is an American, but I know most, you know, well over 50% of the people who do are like me or American, and, you know, a lot of us are older, and we grew up in the 80s, and we know what the Cold War meant from our side, but I got to hear her side of it, you know, growing up and and, and through the big changes of, you know, Russia, or what, what she called it, what was it called? The Union. Um, you know, she referred to it, well, you know, in the Union, and like, oh, in the same way we call it the States. I mean, just that was a fascinating little bit of trivia. That's what they call it. We, you know, we live in the Union, in the same way we live in the States. Um, and hearing her talk about her take on what Russians thought of America during the Cold War, and what it was like to live through this big change, and her parents, who had grown up in a communist society, and in a socialist society, where a lot of their needs were taken care of, and having to make the switch into a capitalist society, oh my gosh, it was amazing. Um, If you can ever spend two hours in a car with um, a a native-born Russian software developer I strongly recommend it. It was so great and so fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And, and again, I'm so thankful to them for um, driving me. And I eventually made it to, uh, to Belfair. They dropped me off. And I spent a very good week with my mom. And so, again, I have to say a huge thanks to Tom Vassell for making all of this possible. Because the only reason this whole thing happened is because Tom had had a stretch goal on his Kickstarter to have me fly over and play in a marathon. And so he paid to fly me over to Florida and then back to Malta. Everything else, of course, I had to pay for myself. Out to Vegas and out to mom and all that. But it was so worth it. We had a really great visit. And, um, and then I wasn't done with Isaiah because on the way back, he agreed to pick me up at the ferry and drive me to the, uh, air, to the airport. And so I got to spend a little bit more time with him. And we actually tried to swing by Three Girls Bakery, which is, um, I haven't had a Three Girls Bakery apple fritter, which is, hands down, the best apple fritter in the world. Um, and every time I get to Seattle, for whatever reason, I can't get one of these things. Either I can't make it to Three Girls, or I do make it, and sorry, we're not selling it that day, because apparently they only sell it on some days now. That wasn't the way when I lived in Seattle decades ago. Um, or they've sold out, because they sell out of them immediately, because everybody knows how amazing they are. And so we str- swung by, and this was a case where, sorry, we just sold out, and the girl said, I'm not even going to tell you how, um, you know, how recently we sold out, because it'll break your heart. Apparently, they sold out in like 45 seconds before I got there. And so, I did not get my apple fritter. Although, again, Real Donuts in Vegas, they had a phenomenal apple fritter. It was very, very good. Anyway, I, so that was a bummer, but I got to hang out with Isaiah a little bit more and you know talk a bit more about 
making board games and the switch from being a video game developer to a board game developer. And, and he told me about his unpub experience, you know, and all. It was, it was great. Wonderful time. Had an absolutely phenomenal time. Dropped me off at the airport and really. It was a completely uneventful flight back home. Everything was fine. Uh, Once again, I was flying on Swiss Air back home. And again, I cannot recommend them highly enough. Great airline. Yay. I finally get back in Malta. And um, I forgot what time. I I think my flight back to Malta landed. um, What was it? Around. It was at a reasonable time. It was like at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And the original plan was that Jen was going to pick me up at the airport. And um, we were going to be able to do some shopping. She was going to take me back home. But it's at this point that Tula's health started taking a turn for the worse. So Jen didn't want to, you know, leave. And I've talked about that, obviously, more than I need to. And I don't want to go into it right now because I want to stay upbeat. Um, But anyway, so Jen decided she couldn't. So we instead, Jen arranged on the, while I was flying back, for me to get uh, there's there's this transit service this transit bus and so okay I'll fine I'll take the transit bus back it'll get me to the the ferry I'll take the ferry and then Jen will pick me up on the other side because that's just like a 15 20 minute drive no big deal and um we thought that'd be fine and I pay for the transit ferry and then I promptly have to wait over an hour at the airport for this bus to leave um and it was god awful and then this bus takes what it's it's about a half hour 45 minute drive under normal circumstances to get from the airport to the ferry terminal this bus takes almost three hours to drive what again should take a half an hour because you know they waited um you know there were more and more people getting off and they were waiting till they could make this big huge thing i must have been the per the first per i must have just missed the previous bus by 10 minutes and so it took me four hours from landing to getting home for what should normally take an hour and a half at the most if things don't go your way and um you know and i ended up oh and so that was horrible that was just the absolute worst. And I eventually get home, and I'm glad to be home, and I'm still glad to be home, and I'm not planning on traveling anytime soon again. But that, folks, I think that is the end of my Florida Vegas Dice Tower story. <sighs> okay, and um, there you go. I probably missed a few things here and there. Hopefully people found this of interest. I don't know. I'm not quite sure why you did, because it had very little to do with games, but... That's that. Now, let's take another breather because, again, my throat is on fire. And then we'll come back and we'll find something new to talk about. Hold on, everybody. Okay, folks. Time for question and answers. You asked them. We will answer them as best we can. Once again, I am joined by Jen. Hello. Hi, Honey Pie. Are you ready? I think so, yes. I count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 emails with questions. Holy moly. All righty, well then. I thought uh, we would have covered pretty much everything by now. Apparently not. All right, well, let's go for it. Ain't nothing to it but to do it. Let's start with um, Andre's question here. Andre the Giant? Uh, I can't say his full name because that wouldn't be cool. No, but I did like Andre the Giant in... Um, Princess Bride. <laughs> okay. All right. There you go. That was not a question, but I suppose me would like any follow-ups on Andre the Giant and Princess Bride. Jen is more than happy to uh, answer your queries. But first of all, 
Andre's question is about the fairness slash morality of the usage of Kickstarter by established publishers. Mm. Do, he says you, but I'm going to say, do we think that it's fair for established publishers to continue to use Kickstarter as a safety net, considering, one, they have the resources and knowledge to publish without Kickstarter, two, their presence takes opportunity and focus from first-time smaller publishers, Three, their product is not niche. And, and, you know, sometimes everybody else. Four, their product is not expected to have limited demand. Five, there's already hype or existing demand for a reprint. These are all different types of examples of established publishers, I guess. And six, reviewers give a marketing boost and recommendation to what is basically an unfinished product, which might significantly differ from the final. Well, actually, that one has nothing to... All right, well, has a whole bunch of stuff. Apologies for length. I want to be clear where I was coming from. Honey, do you think it's Coolio for big-name publishers to put their games on Kickstarter, or should Kickstarter only be the realm of the little indies, the mom and pops, the guy or gal with a dream? In their garage. In their garage. I am sure that you know a heck of a lot more about what's being promoted on Kickstarter than I do. Mm -hmm. So I can only say from a small business person's standpoint, mm-hmm. um, and also as an American, you know, freedom of the, the great American dream of being able to do it if you want to, and yes. whatever effort you put out, you know. Um, I think actually anybody who can sort themselves out in any way, shape, or form, in whatever platform, and become successful deserves it, as long as they're not hurting anyone, and they're marketing an ethical, good product that people mm-hmm. actually want. I think the market will probably determine who is successful and who isn't. And uh, that's kind of good enough for me. I agree, Honey Pie. Oh. Uh, I agree 100%. Yes, it's all fair market business here. The reality is, from my perspective, the thing that often seems to be overlooked for people who say, it's not fair that... Queen Games, and by the way, Queen Games is not some big giant mega corporation. They're like five people. They're not a big corporation. They're a little tiny company too. Pretty much everybody, or almost everybody in the board game industry, is a tiny little minuscule bump on a log. Um, you know, there's only a few mega corporations, and um, you know, and honestly, I don't even mind if they use Kickstarter. I think they're crazy not to use Kickstarter as well. Because the reality is, let's say Fantasy Flight decided to put Runebound third edition on Kickstarter, and it ends up going up against Gloomhaven, which is a fantasy. You know, so that's two dueling fantasy RPG adventure board games. Um, you know, one from a big established player, one from a single guy all by himself, just putting it together. Is that fair or not? Well, the reality is whether Runebound from Fantasy Flight was on Kickstarter or not. It was already going to pull money out of people's pockets. And that was already going to impact the little independent guy anyway. People who were going to buy Runebound were going to buy it whether it was on Kickstarter or not. And people only have a certain amount of money, so that meant you know, the existence of Runebound, period. No matter how you get it, whether it's via Kickstarter, whether it's via online retail stores, or whether it's via a store down at the local um, corner. 
Barnes & Noble, wherever it's going to be, is going to pull money out of people's pockets that's going to compete with the game, with every other game on the market, no matter where it is sold. So, strictly speaking, it doesn't matter. It's all one big marketplace of games. Um, Whether you buy it from Amazon or Kickstarter, Cool Stuff Inc., Miniature Market, it doesn't matter. So, that's kind of, you know, everybody has to compete. And, um, you know, I'm sorry if the occasional little guy gets muscled out, but you know what? Chances are, most of the time, if a little guy doesn't make it, it means they did not make a product that was going to appeal to a big enough audience to hit their target, regardless of whether a big product was on Kickstarter or not, because that, that big product was going to exist regardless. <clears throat> so that's my feeling. It seems Jen pretty much agrees as well. So, thanks for the uh, question, Andre. Next up, we have Ryan. Ryan asks, Ryan has two questions. Okay. All right. Every week, we make three or four reviews for new games. What is your reception to learning quickly new games? You read the rule book, watch some reviews, then dot, dot, dot. So, I think he means by reception, he means, huh? My reception is, I come when called and sit down at the table. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the beginning and ending of your... Uh, uh, I, I assume by reception, he must mean prep. Or, and, and basically, yeah, I do read the rule book. Uh, to learn games the best, most efficient way possible, I have found the number one way to do it is sit down at the table, punch everything, and, at, and as you're reading the rules actually set the game up and then read the rules sitting there in front of the game. Pick the pieces up as the rules talk about them. Shuffle the deck as the rules talk about it. Tangibly touch the game. Get a sense for how things move around. Get a sense for where they sit. That Those kind of tactile connections really help solidify the rules in one's head. If you just go off into a corner and read the rules without actually looking at anything, without actually touching anything, your brain doesn't have anything to to latch onto, and it makes it much, much tougher. Occasionally, I do have to learn rules that way. Like if um, we're going over to the mainland and we're going to play a game over there and I'm actually just on the ferry trying to read the rules and I don't have the game in front of me, I find it to be incredibly challenging to grok the rules. And by the time I get to the person's house, I'm like, okay, i got to read these rules again. Now that the thing is actually in front of me and I can learn it. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Yes, yeah, sometimes I do watch videos uh, to... <clears throat> to help out with that. Although, uh, to be honest, most board game videos don't really do a very good job of helping me learn the game because the standard format that was developed by Scott Nicholson back in the day and then popularized by Tom Vassell of, oh, let's just show the game and kind of talk broadly about how the rules work, that never helps me at all, in all honesty. Seeing somebody actually play the game, walk through the steps, that actually works pretty well. I'm actually really happy that both Sam Healy and Z Garcia on the Dice Tower tend to do their videos that way, rather than what Tom or most reviewers do, which is just talk broadly about, well, here's the kind of stuff you can do, and these are the kind of things you're going to be you know, focusing on. I would much rather see, no, no, here's a turn. You pick this up, you move this here, you choose between these three things, and then you pass the the turn order marker. You know, I need that thing. I need the more concrete and real it is, the easier it's going to be to learn. Ryan's next question. You have more than 300 games. 
That's a statement. How do you bring to mind some old game uh, which you did not play for more than a year? Do you read the rules or something else? Thanks for the answers. In that case, well, nine times out of ten, if it's impossible, I check my own video. I, I watch my own videos all the time. I fire it up. I play it at double speed. And just after watching myself, just do the little intro and maybe a single round. You know, five minutes, because of course I'm watching double speed, so that's really ten minutes of video. I'm pretty much back into it, ready to play. That's enough to spark my recall. And then I just have the rules at the ready. So that's how I pick up a game I haven't played for quite a while. And I don't think that either of those questions for you, Honey Pie... You've already got all you say, which is... Yes, I will sit down at the table. Yes, that's the beginning and end of it. <laughs> I am ready to sit down. Okay. Ray Honeypie would like to know... Or Ray has recently picked up Suburbia and loves it. He's thinking about the expansions, but wants to know, do we play with all the Suburbia expansions, or do we just uh, use pieces and parts of them, or have you just gone back to the base game? Well, first of all, the main way to answer that is we don't play Suburbia because... We are always playing new stuff. Suburbia is the tile game with the yeah. hex tiles. Yeah, and that has the new C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, or you, you take a tile and you can flip it over and make it a lake if you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it also has the new kind of L-shaped ocean, right? Is it that one? The L-shaped ocean. Yeah, that takes up and it borders your property. They weren't L-shaped. They were straight lines and they had jaggies on them. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's yeah. Um, so actually, Ray, it's kind of hard to say because... As a general rule, we don't get to revisit games. What, to answer this question as best I can right now, I would say that if we had a situation where we didn't... I mean, today, what we're going to play, we're going to play Tumult Royale and Dingo's Dreams because we got to play these new games. But if I had the opportunity to go back and play Suburbia with Jen, I, I, first of all, I would definitely always, without fail, throw in the bonus... In-game, or I'm sorry, no, not bonus. The mid-game scoring bonus tiles that were in Suburbia Inc., those are brilliant. I would never play without those. And I suspect I would throw in the five-star tiles from the five-star expansion. I don't know if I'd use the tiles from Inc. because... Well, the, the biggest problem with Suburbia, the more stuff you have, the more variety you add, the more everything gets watered down. So I don't know if I'd want to mix and match tiles from... Ink and five star, but I really, we really like those five star tiles because they make the game much more challenging. Because when you have your layout of tiles in front of you, you're having to decide, you're trying to have to value for yourself is it worth it to get that tile? Should I wait for it to get cheaper? Um, you know, and all that. Suddenly, having to also consider, oh, it does have stars, or it doesn't have stars, or it has three stars, or it has one star, just makes that decision that much more challenging and that much more interesting. So we really like that as well. So if I were to set up Suburbia right now, even though it's kind of a pain because the stars does lengthen the setup time, I think it's worth it because the stars also added a fair bit of interest to the game for us. So I believe that's how we would set up and play. Next up, oh, Honey Pie, Christopher uh, sent me an email named Jen's Glass. Oh, I think I might be able to answer something <clears> here. <throat> we shall see. Uh, we hear a lot about Jen's glass work, but I have no idea how glass is designed and how those cute gamer glass pieces are made. Could you do a Rotto Runs through gamer's glass? It'd be very interesting to know where and how the glass is designed and made. Actually, you're in luck, Christopher. That's already been done. <laughs> we did a, a short video. Gosh, must be like two years ago now, I think. Yeah. Um, because Jen was basically... Oh, it was, it was the first time you were selling glass at Essen. 
So that wasn't last lesson. That was the lesson before when I was carrying them around on my back. Yep. And we made a quick video where I just recorded you making a glass piece. Yep. And you know, we talked about it and and you you talked directly to the camera and all that. So you can find that. Just go to rado.com, you know, my main YouTube page, and how would you find that? Oh, there's a uh, Jen's appearances. It's like two thirds of the way down. That's a list of every video Jen's ever been in. And one of the first ones, if you scroll through that list, you'll find Rado runs through gamer glass. Uh, but Christopher's not done. He also wants to know, how did Jen get into blowing glass? Ooh. Well, I have blown glass once. 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 Uh, actually, I guess a couple times. Um, once we were in Corning, New York, while we were waiting for your work permit to come through when we were moving to England. Mm-hmm. And I did a little sort of half-day class with the Corning people. Um, that was fun. And then actually, I did a full day class with London glass blowers, and that was amazing. But it certainly cured me of the, any thought that I actually wanted to be a glass blower, because that is hard, 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 hot, hot, hot work. And um, you should go watch glass blowers sometimes. It is absolutely amazing what they do. But they are working with probably three or four pounds of glass, probably a five pound iron punty, which is that t- big long metal tube that they're hauling the glass around and blowing into and stuff. And they're also working with molten glass, which is probably around ooh, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and getting it, you know, putting the glass in and out of the um, ovens and stuff. And oh my God, it's just bloody hot. And I don't particularly like being bloody hot. So um, yes, I, I have a wonky glass that I blew and a little <laughs> uh, paperweight type thing and that sort of stuff. But actually, I do not blow glass. I work with a lamp, which is just a torch. And it does also reach um, high temperatures, but fortunately, only in a small area. So it's not bloody hot to work with, unless it's July and August in <laughs> Malta, and it's really hot. Um, so what was the original question? Oh, what was it? how did you get into blowing glass, of course? And your answer is, I don't do that. I've never gotten into yes. it. So, and I don't know, have you, have you already answered the question of how you got into doing glass art altogether? The whole Texas thing? Maybe, but I'll just do it again. All righty. Okay, well, um, basically, I was at a street fair walking around enjoying all of the lovely artisan works and um, found a lady who was making dichroic glass, which is this really shiny metallic coating that you can put on glass and then you can fuse it in a kiln or you actually you can use it in lamp working or blown glass as well. And um, anyway, her work was gorgeous and she said, you know, I have a little travel kiln and um, it was in San Antonio and we lived in Austin at the time. So she said, I'll gather a couple of your friends and I'll bring my little kiln up and we'll cut some glass and we'll melt some glass and we'll have a really good time. And I'm like, hey, I am all over that. So I did. It was sort of like a glassy Tupperware party. Um, but she ended up staying for dinner and we, <laughs> we had a really nice chat. And she used to be a graphic designer, which is what I was um, before as well. And she said, you know, Jen, you could get up in the morning and get out there and fiddle around with glass in your garage and get the kiln going. And while the kiln's heating up, because it takes hours and hours and hours and hours, um, you could then come back in and work on your graphic design business. And the, the kiln is doing its thing. You're doing your thing. And in the morning, you've got beautiful glass and you've also made a bunch of graphic design stuff. And I'm like, oh, the efficiency. I love it. So um, pretty much the next day, I ordered a kiln, really big one. Um, because I've always heard, well, you'll end up with a little one and a big one. So whichever one you want first, um, cause you'll have both. And so I went ahead and bought a big one and some glass. And I just kind of, as soon as it arrived, I just dove right in and started playing. Um, 
took a couple classes in the last 15 years of playing with glass, but I'm mostly self-taught um, because I think actually that's kind of how you find what you want to say and you find your own techniques and things. So um, I guess that's about it. I, I did kiln forming for mainly for about 10 years. Um, I threw a little lamp working in there, sprinkled about, but um, since we moved to Malta, I've just been doing lamp working predominantly because when we moved to Malta, we weren't sure how long we were going to be here. And I didn't want to move down my big kiln and my literally tons of sheet glass to be able to work down here. Plus, you have to set up a studio and get the right kind of electrics and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, ah, it's all set up in England. I'll leave it set up in England. I can always fly back. It's you know only three hours away. And I'll take my lamp working stuff and get back into that. And so that's what I've been doing for the last three years, four years, three, four, somewhere like that. And um, every so often I do fly up to England. I'm just back from a trip actually where I do kiln form work. Um, But I would say actually I've really been enjoying the immediacy of working with glass in in the lamp because you can actually manipulate it, which you can't when you're working with it in a kiln because of course it's really hot in the kiln when it's at the state of being able to work with it. And my husband is like <laughs> flapping his arms around because apparently I'm going on too long. Okay, if we're going to answer all these questions this long, we're going to be here for like three hours. And I know some people actually like that, but... Okay, well, maybe we should have a pause because then you can put a little thing on the uh, thing if you want to skip this big, long, glassy explanation. You can go, and then we'll have some elevator music. Oh, that's okay. We don't need that. Unless you need to take a break? No, I'm no. fine. All right. Well, then let's continue. Okay. Sorry, with... everybody, if that was too long. No, it's fine, honey pie. It's cool. I just... I. The thing is, once you get Jen start talking about glass, she will happily go for three hours <laughs> without taking a breath because it's kind of her passion. So, And I could see that she was not going to stop anytime <laughs> soon. And at the end of the day, this is a show mostly about board games. So uh, thank you very much for your question. Um, gosh, I don't remember who it was. It was Christopher. Ryan. Oh, no, Christopher. Christopher, yes. okay. So next up, Sin, which I assume is how you pronounce it, C-Y-N, which I guess, you know, Cynthia, yeah. so I'm going to assume it's Sin. Um, Sin asks, why do I go by Rado? Is there a story behind the moniker? Easy answer to that, Sin. Go to <laughs> faq.rado.com. You'll find that and the answer to many other commonly asked questions there. Thanks for the question, though. Next up, well, that's, the you know, kind of counteracts Jen's Longer answer with a quick short answer. And now we move on to Nathan, who asks, To what extent, Honey Pie, are you, are we, aware of the modern science-based skepticism movement? And to what degree do we identify with it? Wow. Uh, and or agree with its aims and goals of modern skepticism? Uh, for in one video, for example, you recognized a reference. You recognized a reference to Occam's razor, a common tool for skeptics. And actually, uh, Nathan wrote quite a bit because Nathan was very, very interested when we started going on about religion in the last. And of course, you know, we obviously stopped for various reasons. So uh, he very much appreciated it and wanted to know what we think about the modern science-based skeptics movement. Go. I a have not heard of. The skeptics movement. Mm-hmm. So I am not sure that I can even answer that question because I would have to look it up on Google and find out what they're saying mm-hmm. and all of that. I'm afraid I'm in the same boat, Nathan. Uh, I, 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 I would assume that a modern science-based skepticism movement is basically just being true to the tenets of science, mm-hmm. that you know everything requires quantifiable, verifiable 
you know, evidence, evidence-based stuff. And I would say, yes, that's certainly how I live my life. And uh, Jen, to a slightly lesser extent, also lives her life that way too. Like we'd started to talk about last time, Jen's, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say a bit more spiritual than me, but I do remember I did actually, I think right before we got cut off, I said Jen believes in the force. Yeah. And I don't think we ever circled back around to that because it's not like Jen truly believes that there's Jedis or anything out there or that you have to make your own lightsaber with whatever that crystal is or any of that sort of business. But basically, while me, I'm a hardcore, I'm just going to, I guess, say skeptic to Nathan's question, you know, I don't believe in any of that business. Um, or certainly, you know, I, I won't believe it until somebody actually offers quantifiable, verifiable proof. And in the absence of that, it makes no sense to just believe it on a whim. But Jen has a slightly more open-ended belief that has to do with energy. Yeah. And I don't know if you would like to articulate that now. Oh, very broadly, I think that the... You know what I need to start doing? I need to start putting these questions at the end. Because I have had people in the... Sorry to interrupt, Hank Pie. I have had people say, could you just talk about games, please? Could you please stop talking about your own personal life? You know what? what? Why don't we talk about this one? We'll we'll put it in at the very end as its own separate Exactly. And then you and I can look up what the skeptics thing is. Okay, Nathan, we'll come right back to that. All righty, let's move on to Justin. Let's see if he has a game-related question. (laughs) Alrighty. Maybe you should have game related at Rado mm. and everything else. At Maybe I should actually just read these before we actually do the run through. That might be good too. Yeah, but this but, keeps it fresh. Yeah, life is too short for prep. Um, wow, Nathan Justin has written a very, very, very long email, and I'm just scanning it really quickly for question marks. D D D, and I'm not finding any. Oh, but he has so many things to say. Oh, there's a question mark, <laughs> but no, that's not really a. Oh. Uh, anyway, uh, that's just what I've been thinking about for a while. He wrote a tome. He wrote like a 20-page email. What do you think about this? Do you agree, disagree entirely? Seems like most people do, considering how highly anticipated Gloomhaven is. Right, so I do have to read all of this stuff so I can answer. Uh, okay, well, we'll have to put this a little bit later, too. Um, actually, Justin, I'm sorry. We'll wait for this for the next podcast. It'll be good to have something in the ready. I will read this because... And in the future, folks, please bold the question. Or <laughs> just try to... Make, you know, but anyway, um, yeah, this is way too long to read out loud. I'll have to come back to that. Okay, next up. Charlene... Oh, all right. Well, this is going to have to go to the end because this is definitely not a game-related question. Justin asks... Okay, this is also not a game-related question. Okay, David asks, Are you excited about Star Trek Frontiers? Answer, yes. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. It is my second most anticipated game of the year. Only behind Gloomhaven, and strictly speaking, it probably is my most anticipated game because I've already played Gloomhaven or, you know, prototype of it. I could not be more excited about it. Jen knows nothing about it, but um, I, I doubt you even remember playing Mage Knight which is the game it's based on, just with a Star Trek theme. But it's going to be awesome. As soon as, as soon as it gets here, I'm sure she'll love it too, because we both love Trek with all our hearts. Second question. Uh, please let me know your thoughts on auction games with two players. My opinion is that if you have two players at equal experience levels, auctions work great with two. My wife and I enjoy Raw and Biblios, for example. I back the new Medici, and I'm looking forward to trying this with two. Honey Pie, do you have any particular thoughts about auctions in board games? I like to auction with you because you play nice. <laughs> How do you mean? Um, well, 
neither of us is out to screw the other, and uh, I think we can generally both be trusted to not be mean. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I, actually, I talked about auctions a bit when I did my top 10. I did a top 10 list that was... Oh, I forget what it was. Was it the non-violent gameplay interaction? No, it was a different one. But I have talked about this in the past. And the reality is, interestingly, auctions are a gameplay mechanism that Jen and I enjoy quite a bit, even though they can often be hugely cutthroat. You know, by their design, it's all about trying to figure out how much money you're willing to spend, and if you don't particularly even care about it at all, how much money you can drive up the price so your opponent has to spend more. And the thing is, Jen and I, as a general rule, I mean, we will drive the price up. Make no mistake. And that's kind of a mean move, I guess. It's kind of an aggressive move, but we will do it. Not because we feel like we're being aggressive, but we feel like it's, it's almost cheating the game if we don't. For somebody to get something that is worth 20 bucks to get it for $1, that just feels wrong to both of us. So it feels almost kind of like we're doing our duty when we make sure that the other person... We, when we take a huge gamble ourselves, maybe getting something that we don't particularly want, but we will drive the price up in what some could consider to be an aggressive fashion. But as a general rule... We won't do it. But what Jen's talking about with the friendly thing, what is often the case is... Um, I'm trying to think of an auction game where this happens. But it does happen quite a bit. Where... Oh. Is this even in, in auction games? Basically, there are many, many times when Jen will do something... She'll spend her money because she figures, oh, I'll be able to pick that up. And she thinks, yeah, I'm going to be able to get that. No, I, you know, Duck doesn't care about it. That's what she calls me. And so I'm going to spend all my money right now. I'll go into the auction round only having a little bit of money because I'll be able to get what I want. And I'll see her doing that. I'll say, honey, don't do that. I mean, you're not going to get that thing for two bucks. I know that's what the minimum <laughs> bid is. Pelopenes is the perfect example of this. Pelopenes, you're required to make an opening bid. Yeah, Pelopenes is a great example. You're, you, you make your opening bid. There's a minimum that you have to do, and you cannot raise your bid. It's one of the things that makes Pelopenes maybe the greatest auction game of all time, as far as we're concerned, because it's so tense. Because you get it's a one-pass bidding system. You make your bid, and that's it. You live with it. And Jen will happily say, oh, it's two. Well, I'll put two there. And I'm like, honey, you're not going to get that if you bid two. It's not a threat. I'm just letting you know. It's advanced information. I, I'm, I'm letting you know. I value that as well. And if you get that, at, if you try to go for that too, you're giving that to me for a scream. For and three. you, uh, yeah. And you really shouldn't do that because look at my situation. Look how badly I need that tile. I need it pretty bad. Um, and so you might want to rethink that bid. And you know that's what Jen is talking about. That. And that's not just for auctions. That's kind of across the board that we tend to play games that way whenever there's any sort of drafting at all for anything, whether it's auction-based or just you know handing a handful of cards back and forth. We're, um, I don't know. It, it's, it certainly isn't to my benefit to do that, but I have never been the sneaky, oh, I can't believe they're making such a stupid move. Now I will capitalize on their foolishness and their short-sightedness. I, I feel terrible capitalizing on somebody's foolishness and short-sightedness. And if they do something where, man, if you had just looked and thought about that for half a second, you'd see you're giving me the game. I, I don't let that pass. I point that out. Now, Jen in the past okay. has not always been... Say, okay, I was yes, say, <laughs> I say, I own that. 
Um, I was uh, brought up in a slightly more competitive environment, maybe, <laughs> than my he- lovely husband. And he has made me a better person that way. I'm not saying it's a better person. There's nothing wrong with wanting to capitalize on the foolishness and short-sightedness <laughs> of others. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. One would argue they, there's no better way for them to learn. But I figure you can learn just as well. You know, I'd, I'd rather teach somebody without... I mean, I'm, I'm a carrot, not stick guy, I guess. Yeah, and I would say... It wasn't that I was ever malicious towards you. It was more no. that if you didn't see something that I saw that was part of my game plan, I wasn't going to bring it to your attention because that was part of my game plan. Yep, 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 yeah. Um, and and again, you would secretly, I mean... I would just go, whew, he didn't, he didn't take that. I really want that. I'm so glad he didn't take that in yeah. my head. And Yeah, and whew, he just gave me the game. That was really, really important or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, so back to auctions specifically. Yeah, we love auctions. A good auction, I mean... Keyflower is a fantastic two-player game. Peloponnese is a fantastic two-player game. Someday I'll do a top 10 auction games because I could totally do it. Auction games are phenomenal. It's true you can have auction games that don't work particularly well with two, but that's kind of the exception to the rule. As you say, if both players are equally well-versed in the game, just about any auction is going to be interesting, although some are definitely better than others. Uh, Homesteaders is a phenomenal two-player auctioning system that I absolutely love. Let's see. Next, we move on to um, Ennui has two questions. One, if you were to hold a board game session in a video design class, what games would you pick and why? Because apparently Ennui lives in Singapore and he is actually, he does teach a class on video game design and is thinking about holding a two or three hour board game session. Wow, if you were to hold a board game session in a video game design class, what would you pick and why? That's tough. That's really tough. Let's see if the second question is easier. Um, if you were to devise an assignment in a video game design class that involves creating a board game prototype, would you add restrictions like specifying the me- mechanism or theme or just let them create whatever you want? Okay, that's easy. I would, if you are teaching people youngsters, younglings, how to become video game developers, definitely create an assignment and give them harsh restriction. Give them nasty restrictions because you have to prepare them for the reality of being a video game designer. And a video game design it doesn't help them to say, oh, do whatever you want, laissez-faire, the sky's the limit, explore your creativity, because that's not the experience they're going to have when they actually go out into the world and try to get people to pay them money to design games. They are going to have very, very strict and harsh limitations. Budget limitations, technology limitations, franchise limitations, IP limitations... Um, you know, ratings limitations, any number of limitations. So I would always suggest never give them a do whatever you want, the sky's the limit. Uh, always come up with limitations that replicate the reality of the market they're going out into. So that's an easy question. For the first question, man, that's tough. That's really, really tough. Honestly, off the top of my head, I don't have a particularly good answer for that, and I don't know that you do either, Honey Pie. No, she's not even looking feedback. at the wall. She's just going back to checking her email. Uh, she's like, okay, this is not a question for me. You know what? Um, Ennui, I'm a f- I believe you'll ha- go to guild.rado.com and post the question there. And I'm sure other people will answer. And I'll be able to give it some more thought. Because I'll have to think about that. That's a tough one. So moving on to Ross. Ross, honey, would like to know if we still book? have time stories. Yes, we do. Um, and have we tried any more of the expansions and have any additional thoughts? 
Yes, we do. Yes, we have. And still love it. How's that? Okay, there you go. Yes, it's true. We have played The Prophecy of Dragons. We loved it a lot. We did eventually go back and play Asylum. Loved it a lot. And we have, in our hot little hands, and just don't necessarily have the time right now, to play, I can't remember the name of the Pharaoh Egyptian one, Under the Mask or something like that. Um, But we love it. Still love it. Absolutely adore it. Um, And it was interesting to do Prophecy of Dragons. Still absolutely hate and am filled with rage. Well, not rage. I'm kind of mellowing, but still just really filled with... Every time I see, they put another expansion out, and once again, they cannot be bothered to come up with decent two-player rules. Had to come up with our own rules, actually uh, with some help of some other people on BoardGameGeek, to make Prophecy of Dragons work well. They did work really well. I'll talk about them in the run-through I did. I imagine the same thing will have to happen for the Egyptian one, and I can only assume the developers just don't care about two-player, and it's just going to be on us to continue to come up with our own variants to make it work well as a two-player game. And it just drives me nuts, and I know I'm not alone. And I also know a lot of people disagree, and they think it works great. Good for them. I'm happy you're enjoying the game as a two-player game where you're a general instead of an actual character. That's cool. It's not something Jen and I enjoy, and so that's really continuing to be my only one just, oh, I just hate it, that they just can't be bothered, and they make us do the heavy lifting of design. And at the same time, pretty much completely invalidating the score system. Um, Because... Spoiler alert, at the end of every game, you you get a ranking of how well you did. And because we're having to play with our own homemade variants, that ranking system is completely meaningless to us because we have no idea if we're playing the game too hard or too easy. So that pisses me off, but still, absolutely adore the game. A phenomenal game, just marred by an amazingly short-sighted design decision that the developers are making. Because, well, they value different things than than some of their audience does. And But Ross is not done, Honey Pie. You also once said you have a rather large Laserdisc collection. <laughs> yeah. Did you keep it or get rid of it? I love the Laserdisc format. And to this day, my only problem is having to get up and flip, change the discs. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the format? Well, we had a, the kind of Laserdisc thing that, that flipped itself. Well, our first Laserdisc didn't player, we? we didn't. We eventually upgraded and got one that would automatically flip on the inside somehow. Well, I think the lens just moved from up to Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I've never actually saw it. I don't know if it had two lasers or if it did some kind of flip. It didn't flip the disc itself, no. obviously, because it wasn't... a. Two-foot-tall box. But yeah, yeah, we eventually took care of the flipping. And the flipping was always a pain. Actually, to a certain extent, I didn't mind it. Even when I had to physically get up, because a good movie Laserdisc producer would put those flips at a good moment in the movie... And that was kind of like the equivalent of an intermission, like in the old days. And, okay, time to flip the disc. Hey, let's get up, go to the bathroom, you know, uh, get some more popcorn, whatever. That was great. But occasionally you would get a, a disc that would just, literally, they didn't care. They just put it in an arbitrary, like literally, I think Reservoir Dogs, if I recall correctly, just right in the middle of a scene, a very dramatic scene, just put a cut, and that was really terrible. So, done well, I think the laser disc flips were actually almost an enhancement to the movie watching experience. But yeah, the thing is... <clears throat> they're heavy. Um, yeah, well, they're big and they're cumbersome. And yeah, our latest disc collection, we must have had... It was at least 600 discs. 
probably five or six hundred, maybe not quite seven. But we got them from a video store that was going out of the laser discs. Exactly. I mean, it's not like we sought out and bought. I mean, I, I probably bought maybe twenty laser discs, and most of them were like you know big box collectors Criterion edition type things. You know, the Dis- Disney put out those amazing big thick multi disc collections. I mean, you know, back in the day when you either got on tape or you got that way. Loved that stuff. And they're in Bend, Oregon. There was a store. They had a huge laziness collection. They decided, okay, we aren't moving these. Heck, this Richard Ham guy is pretty much the only guy in town, <laughs> in the entire town of Bend, who rents these things. We just can't keep doing it. And uh, you know, I went in one day and saw, oh, they have for sale. And I said, how much for all of them? And uh, we struck a deal. And you know, I'm, I always, I've often talked about when people ask, hey, how do you retire so early? And I always say, live frugally. While all my coworkers, off of their bonuses from the big video games I made, would buy Porsches and whatnot, we never did anything like that. That's not true. Uh, I'm misspeaking when I say that. I did buy, whatever it was, 600 laser discs at, I think, like $2 a pop. No, it wasn't even that. I think it was a dollar a pop. I, I, I think I paid a grand for that. It was a, a, a thousand or eleven hundred bucks for that just that big collection of whatever it was, six hundred some laser discs. And that was my big good job. Siphon filter was a big hit. I should buy something for myself. Mm. I'll buy a thousand bucks worth of laser discs at a ridiculous um, savings. And it turned out that was a real problem because as Jen says, laser discs take up a lot of space and we had no place to put them. And so it was actually really cool. Not too far after that was my birthday and Jen had made for my birthday this beautiful custom bespoke laser disc display cabinet shelf thing. Um, And it was gorgeous. Absolutely lovely. It it fit them all. And uh, so that's how... and And we kept that collection for quite a while brought the whole thing with us to texas including the big shelf and i just loved it and when we were going to move to england we decided you know by that point dvds were starting to come around and the writing was on the wall and it was obvious not to keep them and we didn't want to carry whatever it was 600 laser discs to england that was just absolutely insane so i went to a local um you know we buy used videos, DVDs, laser discs, anything, and I went and sold them to this place and I sold the whole thing for like 3 or 400 bucks, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. I was pretty happy with that. I'm sure in the years to come they probably regretted or heck, maybe they sold them all, I don't know. But I was able to flip them for about two-thirds of what we paid. Mm-hmm. And because by that point, like I said, the writing was on the wall, DVDs were here to stay. Um and of course, you know, digital or you know, downloadable um purchases we're far off in the future, but absolutely loved it. And honestly, when it was done well, I liked flipping discs, if, if I'm honest. Do you have any other thoughts on laser discs? Any oh, that one. We should have put that towards the end. That had nothing to do with games. Oh, Ross, you snuck in a sneaky question. All righty. Um, let's see. Let's move on to Jacob, who has a couple of questions. You said before that you have no desire to play video games anymore and your passion for bo- is for board games now. Opportunity for traveling, royalties and high pay aside, do you wish you would have spent your career designing and or publishing board games rather than video games? No. <laughs> Why is that, honey pie? Because video game stuff pays really good. <laughs> well, yes, it does if you're successful. And for the record, it doesn't pay really well for everybody. But if, if you are in the right place at the right time, it can play very well, obviously. But he said putting royalties in high pay and opportunity for travel. I mean, all things being equal. 
if they were both just kind of middling, you know, you, you could make a, a, a living at either one, but neither of them had any of the cachet, all things being equal, should I have been making video games for 20 years or board games for 20 years? Well, that's hard to say because you got in right at the beginning of, of really the video game explosion. And I think actually you've kind of gotten in at the beginning of the board game explosion mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So 20 years ago, there really, there was no board gaming thing really to be done. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. once again, you're answering the question couched in the reality. This is more of a hypothetical, all things being equal, including the relative size and scale of the industry and maturity of it. It's just a simple question. And really, it's not even a question for you, but um, it's a question no, for me. Question. Would I have rather my career had been spent designing board games or video games? All other things being equal. If either way, we could have retired at 46, because that would have, either way would have made just as much money, we would have had just as much opportunity to travel and see the world and blah, blah, blah. Should I have spent 20 years making video games or board games? Totally hypothetical question. Right. Well, video games are... I- I guess you don't have to answer the question. It's not even directed to you, but you seem like you're struggling with it. I'm trying to decide what, what, what the difference really is. I mean, board games are sit down at a table, so it's face-to-face. Video games tend not to be face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So I think that's potentially the main difference. I guess maybe video games, you're a little bit more viscerally involved because you're pushing buttons and you're seeing the results of your actions on the screen. Whereas in board games, it's more in your mind. It's a bit more imagination that, oh, you know, you're swashbuckling away on a pirate ship or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I really don't think you have anything to say on this topic. And you don't have to answer. Okay. To me, the easiest way to answer that is no. I'd much rather have made video games because uh, either way, if I build, make something for 20 years, I'm going to be burned out on it. I'm much happier being burned out on video games than board games. The reason, honey, I was expecting you to say, no, I wish you'd been making board games all those years, is because I would have brought the work home. You would have been a playtester with me. You would have been involved. For 20 years, I basically worked in a black box because Jen was not interested in playing the vast majority of the games I made. She didn't like Siphon Filter. She didn't care for the fact that you know we made a sizable amount of money off of a murder simulator. Um, for all intents and purposes. And, uh, yeah, my work was really, um, you know, if, if I'd been making board games all that time, I would have been playing, you would have been my number one play tester. Yeah. So I am shocked you didn't say, oh my God, I wish you had been. That's why I kept waiting for you to say, oh. and you kept getting lost in the weeds of, well, I don't even know what you were thinking. <laughs> well, there's the visceral button pressing, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, dear. Well, actually, I was just kind of thinking that there probably aren't a heck of a lot of board game widows out there. There's where there are a lot of video game widows. Mm-hmm. So that was more what I was thinking is that how intense and crazy could you possibly get on board game development? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's all things being equal. So I'm going to say they are equally intense and crazy. All things being equal. Do I push pixels or do I push cardboard professionally? All other things being equal. Well, but- Workload, pay... Then- Everything, genre, and all that. Then you would be, you would have been making a board game murder, murder simulator. Mm-hmm. Well, that, would you have rather I'd done that rather than a video game murder simulator? Because at least we could have played it together. Well, I'm not sure. If I'd, I'd made have... Siphon Filter the board game, I'm not sure I'd want to play Siphon Filter the board game. Mm-hmm. So if all things are equal, okay, then 
I guess no, because then you would have expected me to be playing a board game. Interesting. Murder simulator with Interesting. You. Okay, I'll I'll buy that for a dollar. If you're going down that track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the hypothetical that Jacob put to us. But Jacob's not done. Oh. Question number two, which he openly admits might be more of a criticism than an actual question. Um, and with that opening, I'm going to read this whole paragraph. Oh. You've made so many video games, for example, Fable 2, where the majority of the gameplay is focused on killing and attacking enemies in the game, yet you're not comfortable playing board games where you're directly attacking, affecting other players. There may be emotional players, not me, that are uncomfortable about killing digital enemies that would avoid such games. I think they'd argue that they have their own emotions, ambitions, etc. And yet you're simply killing them for experience items. Do you find it somewhat hypocritical that you designed and enjoyed those games, and yet you're uncomfortable playing most board games where you're directly affecting other players through destruction, stealing, and other means? If not, can you please explain? I now, once again, this is directed at me, but, know, but if you've I'm got something say, to say yeah. on this topic... I think video games are a lot easier to be um, destructive towards others mm-hmm. than sitting across the table and looking into somebody's eyes or seeing how your actual actions affect their style of playing. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, board games are a much gentler, much more mm, empathetic way, style of playing. And I think, that's, and therefore you feel it more. You, you feel it more. And also, I think maybe it's just a better way of dealing with your fellow humans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I am going to answer that myself. It's, it's an interesting observation, but I do think it's kind of an incorrect observation because you're working under an assumption that's not really quite true about my preferences for board games. Don't get me wrong. I have absolutely nothing against killing virtual enemies in board games. I have no problem playing claustrophobia. And in fact, Jen loves claustrophobia. We really enjoy Runebound 2nd Edition. It's true we, as a general rule, don't tend to enjoy Ameritrash-style board games. And strictly speaking, if you were to draw a parallel between board games and the video games I made, I tended to make Ameritrash-style video games. But we don't, uh, you know, we don't have a problem with killing orcs and goblins and various and sundry monsters in games. I also don't have a problem with killing other humans in games. Bored, you know, digital or analog. Now, Jen does. Like, I remember specifically, uh, there's a really wonderful card game based on Uncharted, the video game. It's really well done. Very smartly designed. I liked it quite a bit. We got rid of it because Jen didn't like playing as Nathan Drake, shooting and killing other human beings. Just absolutely refused to do it. Has no problem killing orcs and goblins and trolls and dragons... Um, and malicious sprites or whatever it might, or you know, oozy slimes, but doesn't want to kill human beings. Doesn't matter whether it's digital or analog. Jen's very consistent about that. I'm very consistent about it as well. I have no problem killing just about anybody, um, you know, in a fantastical make believe situation. What I don't enjoy doing in board games, and this is really more a reflection of me rather than Jen. As Jen said earlier, she grew up in a more competitive, some might say cutthroat household. <laughs> um, but I, it's what I don't enjoy in board games is destroying stuff that you have built. Something that you have taken you know, time and pleasure to craft and create. And you have a sense of pride. And this is a wonderful thing. And look what I have accomplished. Oh, that's nice. That's a lovely sandcastle. Let me walk over and kick it all in your face. That... I have no interest uh, for in board games, which is, and that's the predominant means of it, player interaction. 
uh, in board games. You actually build something and then somebody else tries to tear it down. I hate that. I hate it equally in video games. I have never had any interest in playing multiplayer video games based on um, civilization themes because it was just as untenable to me to destroy your civilization um, on my table as opposed to on my computer monitor. I remember specifically years ago playing Diablo 1. Um, was it Diablo 1? Yeah, playing it online. You know, and Jen and I, no, it must have been Diablo 2. No, I think it was Diablo 1. Could you play Diablo 1 online? Yeah, you could. Yeah, Battle.net was on Diablo 1. And, you know, we were all playing it at work. And uh, there was one guy, Wayne. He, uh, well, he, he was an Ameritrasher through and through. Not that any of us knew what the term was. He was definitely... I mean, I remember he would go on Battle.net. And if you remember, um, you, you, could, you could get online in Diablo and you could trade with people. But the game didn't have any system to control it. So you'd have to meet up with somebody in town. And you'd say, okay, I agree to do this and you agree to do that. And, um, and then everybody just puts their stuff on the ground. And everybody else then you know, picks it all up. And Wayne would just go in and he would say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you, for 500 bucks, I'll give you this thing. And then he'd go, he'd pick up the sword. And then he wouldn't give them the money. Or vice versa. And he wouldn't leave. And they would stand there. And there was nothing they could do because that was the system. And they'd be typing, what, what's wrong? Why did you do that? And you could play or kill and stuff like that too. And you could just do a lot of nasty stuff. Uh, because Diablo 1 didn't really have much player control. Because I don't think the industry quite realized how dickish people could be. And Wayne, I mean, God, he reveled in it. And I remember there were a bunch of us. They were all sitting around and we were all... Or I'd say we. They were all laughing. They thought it was funny and... I saw that and it was like, oh my God, that is the most terrible thing I've ever seen somebody do. And don't get me wrong, I loved Wayne. I thought he was a lovely guy, a you know, great coworker, a good friend. And I was shocked how somebody who I respected, who, who I liked, could do something that was just so heartless and callous. And to me, it's equally heartless and callous to rip down something you've built in a board game. I, I, so it doesn't matter. I, I think I'm actually fairly consistent. I don't like doing that stuff in digital or analog format. So um, that's pretty much how it works. Uh, hopefully that answered the question. It was a very interesting question. Let's move on to Matt. Matt says, Whenever I teach my wife a new game, she, all caps, always beats me the first time. I like to think she knows I'm a great teacher. Smiley face. <laughs> um, does one of you tend to win more often the first time? Are there specific types of games that you or Jen do better at? Do you or Jen approach a game differently if your opponent knows the game much better than you? Like when you played against the Dice Tower guys, for example. Um, uh, the first time we play... I don't know. First of all, Jen tends to beat me about 65% of the time. Most likely because you tell me. That's not a good I don't answer. help myself, yep. that's true, because I'm a little, as discussed earlier, I'm kind of an idiot um, <laughs> that way, because uh, I don't have the killer instinct. I am not the shark that um, Jen can be. Although, like you said, you're, you're softening around the edges as well. Um, but even in spite of that, in spite of that, in a pure multiplayer solitaire game, Jen's going to win six to seven times out of ten. And that's just something I've had to make my peace with. Um, I don't think that's because she's smarter than me. I just think it's because she's more diligent than me and is more willing to think and rethink and rethink and grind her gears until she finds the perfect optimal move. Whereas, yeah, whereas I am, I'm just a very instinctual play by the seat of my pants. Oh, I could do this or this. You know what? This feels right. I'm going to go with that. 
Um, and hey, not surprisingly, Jen wins more often than not. And I would say maybe I maybe it gets closer to 50-50 the first time we play because Jen doesn't know the game well enough to maybe use her extra brain cycles to squeeze every last little bit out of that resource she's about to spend to build that brick or whatever it might be. You know, in the first time, she's still kind of learning the game. So maybe it gets a bit closer to 50-50 because... And certainly... Man, I can't think of examples, but there are some games out there, they're very few and far between, that do really reward instinctual play. I do tend to win more in real-time competitive games, not that we have very many, but I tend because I think and I decide, and I'm I'm faster and more decisive than Jen, as a general rule. So any kind of game that rewards that, uh, um, I'm going to tend to win. I win more often in Galaxy Trucker than her. Um... Just because, uh, yeah, but anyway. so I, I think that's. And do we approach a game differently if your opponent knows the game much better than you? I don't think I would. If you were going to sit down and play something with David and Angela, and you know that they know the game backwards and forwards, would that change anything about the way you play the game, honey? No, because it, I guess if if I knew the game better than my opponents, then that does change the way you play because you don't want to wipe the floor with them mm-hmm. because then they don't have a good experience. I have them. not seen any evidence of this side of Jen that she is now mentioning where she will take it easy on opponents. This is news to me. Oh. Um, I, I know there have been times when we're playing a game and, I, and I'll literally say, honey, could you just maybe not win by 50 points? Because this is kind of their first game. I have actually, had, not during the game because everyone's sitting around there, but I would say afterwards, honey, you, you, you didn't have to, you know... You didn't have to win by that much, did you? Really? What? I, you make me sound like an ogre. You no, know, you know, you are a competitive player, as you said. You grew up in a competitive household. Mm. Well, okay. I was gonna say, I was uh, last time I was in Los Angeles. A friend of mine, we went off to a gaming store mm-hmm. and sat down and played a couple of games, and. Um, it was really interesting because the person who was teaching us, what's that game that I told you we played um, where you build a city and we had just, we'd gotten, I'd brought the expansion back with me because it had been one of those things you had me carry back. And everybody loves this game, but I wasn't all that impressed with it. Oh. Do you remember? No, I don't. And it's got little Machi Koro. Machi Koro. Machi Koro. Okay. Neither Jen nor I were very impressed by Machi Koro. Right. But anyway, go on. So, so the guy that was teaching the game knew it backwards and forward and everything. And he was, I'm sure, a very nice guy, but kind of phoning it in on the instructions. <laughs> and so a lot of us, and I think there were six or seven of us playing. Maybe? And that's a simple game. It's not very hard to teach that game, really. No, it's not. But, I mean, there's a lot of interactions like, okay, so you want to get a lot of uh, green cards or blue cards or purple cards or whatever. Um, because at the end, it's really good because they, they pile on top of each other or whatever. But anyway, it, he just... Yeah, so he beat us all. And there were things that as you as the so about two thirds of the way through the game, I'm like, click. Um, that's why he's collected all those blue cards or whatever it was mm-hmm. and stuff. And and I did feel a little bit taken advantage of. Mm. To be honest. Uh-huh. And, and I just thought, well No, I'm sure he I mean I mean you're not probably, suggesting that he was purposely withholding no, information. No, I am sure that he told all of us in the instructions, you want to collect all the blue cards because of this or that, or, you know, you want to make sure you get lots of one color because of this or that. And until you have the context, that doesn't mean anything to you. So you, that's one of the things I really like about how you teach is you do figure out the reason for this or that or whatever, and it, you set it into context. And so it does become memorable. And there's a few instances 
where we'll be playing, you'll say, honey, I told you that. I did explain that at the beginning. And I'll like, oh, yeah, I just didn't. Mm. I didn't grok it. Yeah, I, I always but, feel terrible when that happens. No, that's When right. halfway through a game, anybody says, oh, my gosh, I didn't. And I'm like, oh, how could I have not made that clear? I, I just feel awful well, when I fail somebody that way. We play before you film so that yeah. you can work these things out. Mm. But um, I don't know. I just felt a little bit when for that whole game. And maybe that's another reason I that didn't really game. care for the game itself. But um, So I, I would not want to put that on somebody else if I was playing with somebody who didn't know the game as well as I do, I would do my best to explain the little ins and outs and techniques and put it into context and trend so that they can grok that a lot easier and faster and enjoy the whole game as opposed to, you know, two thirds or three quarters of the way through you go, Oh boy. Yeah. I've been a dodo the whole game. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All righty. Uh, let's see. Um, and I, I don't think I would actually change anything about the way I play. I just play the way I play. Um, and I don't think Jen would either. Um, although, like I said, you are apparently are a bit more cognizant than you might have been in the past of trying not to absolutely destroy noobs, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. Maybe she'll take it easy on me once in a while. <laughs> uh, probably not, though. Occasionally, though, we'll be getting towards the end of a game, and he'll go, you know what? Can you just not be as efficient? Because you're going to win, and you can win by 10 points, or you can win by 20. Or but yeah, that actually happens a fair bit of time. I mean, you know, and Jen's like, no, I, there's no guarantee I'm going to win. Because, I'm like, honey, oh, do the math. Yeah. Look at it right here. I'm going to say at least 30% of the time, maybe 40% of the time, when you say, I am so not winning this game, that there is a, a surprise twist at the end, mm -hmm. and yes. you do win. Yes, and by, by, you just said... Probably 30% of the time, which means 70% of the time I'm right and you have one and it is fait accompli. And yet she's still sitting there grinding her gears for 10 minutes, trying to squeeze every last drachma she can out of her castle. And I'm like, honey, do you really need to beat me by 100 points? Isn't 85 points enough? Really? Yeah. And she says, no, come back and I'll let you know when I'm ready. <laughs> Sometimes I'd let it go. Yeah, let's see. Uh, Matt Honeypie asks... Oh, wait, no, no, that was Matt's question. All right, moving on to Stephen. Stephen asks uh, in his email, Star Wars Rebellion, a case study. Let's see. He talks quite a bit about Star Wars Rebellion, which is a game we'll never play. Um, because, yes, because it has a lot of direct conflict. It's a, basically a, a war game of sorts. Um... So his question would be, where do theme and conflict for you and Jen, well, um, conflict? What don't you like about conflict, and what are the factors that make it acceptable for you? Because uh, his question earlier in the email was, or since I don't really know, what are, here's the real question. Has there ever been a game where the theme has allowed you to enjoy direct conflict? If not, thus far, do you think there ever might be a game where player versus player conflict is so much a part of the theme, but is a theme that you really latch onto that you would indulge the conflict? I can say pretty safely because of Star Trek fleet captains, that the answer to that is no. That's not going to happen. Um, Star Fleet Fle Fle <laughs> is a wonderful game that when Jen and I first sat down and we played it the first time, I mean, we were just smitten. We absolutely loved it. It was, it was, it's, it's a big, brash, Ameritrash game. And, it, and you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't normally like, but we loved it there because it was just so pure uh, Star Trek theme. But the first time we played, Jen was the Federation, I was the Klingons, and she destroyed me. 
absolutely stormy. And we were like, okay, well, you know, that can happen sometimes. Let's, but it was so much fun. Who cares? Let's play again. And then she destroyed me the second time. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm the Klingons. I'm going to lose every single time if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, which is cloak and chase her and harass her all around the board while she's just trying to do her scientific voyage of discovery and you know, um, you know, strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations and boldly go where no gen has gone before. <laughs> that's all she wants to do. And as the Klingons, that's what I was trying to do, and I was getting decimated. And so the next time we played, I'm like, okay, honey, just so you know, I'm going to cloak. And here I come, and I'm sending out my false beacons, and you know where I am, and, and, aha, now I've got you, and I'll pounce. And I tried to do it. I tried to say, it's, you know, kapla, I'm a Klingon. I tried to be Christopher Lloyd. I, you know, I just, you know, I, I tried to channel my inner Martok, and I just went with it, and we didn't even finish that game. You know, after the first fight, we were both so miserable, and we hated it so much that we just, no. Then And I got rid of the game immediately thereafter. And I kept watching, hoping someday they would release a Ferengi um, expansion. So one person could be, um, you know, so both players could just be focused on exploration and expansion and exploitation and forget that stupid extermination stuff. We love Star Trek. Star Trek fleet captains wouldn't work for us. So I'm pretty sure, based off of that example, it's just never going to happen. Now, that's not to say there aren't conflict games we like. Uh, the best example I can think is Tash Kalar, which is very much a, you know, that's the, the weird abstract wizard duel in arena where you're trying to lay the, the power stones out so they match the, I'm, I'm describing it to Jen and using my hands. So the, you know, you've got these cards, you're trying to make these particular patterns of a phoenix or, or, a, or a charging ram. Don't tell me, you can't remember, we've played this like a dozen times. I know, I mean, the name is so familiar, but you're, charging ram, pattern of... On your turn, you put these little discs on the board. Yes. And you're trying to make them match a pattern, whether it's a straight line with a bump at the end because oh, that right. represents yeah, a yeah, Medusa yeah. on with a yeah. yeah that game. Yeah. We love that game, and in that game you're constantly smashing your opponent's toys and you know thwarting their abilities. I think the reason we like it so much is because we don't play it as a way. Hmm, I suspect she's trying to go for the black dragon. I better break that up. We just play the whole game. Well, this is what I need to do. And, oh, I'm sorry I kind of broke your stuff up. And, oh, and you're sorry you broke my stuff up. And we end up um, clashing over that game. Um, so, you know, there's occasionally a conflict-heavy game we can play. And I talked earlier about, you know, uh, we, we kind of are kind of conflicty, but not really, not in an aggressive way with auction games. But, yeah, it's just, it's just not going to happen. So his overriding question of where do theme and conflict conflict um, what don't you? Well, we've talked about what we don't like about conflict quite a bit in this podcast, as it happens. And what are the factors that make it acceptable, honey? Where would you be fine with conflict in a game? Since we didn't enjoy Star Trek Feet Clappins, which we we wanted to love that game with all our heart. Yeah, I I couldn't tell you specific games, but I know there are a few of them out there that. When is conflict okay for you? Not a specific game, but under what circumstances? Although that's a. That that's a that's I mean Jen is not as pro Jen doesn't have a problem with conflict like I do I mean well but no but I don't know she does more I don't know maybe I've just rubbed off on you yeah because sure um, I remember you know back before we got married and you were so desperate to play I don't remember what that crazy card game was yeah. euchre it's not euchre but it's euchre ish or something like yeah, that Jen's a card shark and I mean 
She, I mean, she, you know, she, she goes for the jugular. None of her family would play this game with her anymore. She'd spent her whole life, and her whole family realized, you know, we just can't play this game with you anymore, Jen. You just destroy us too much. You never take it easy on us. I think your mom would still play it with you, knowing she would lose every single time. And you tried to suck me in, and I wouldn't play it with you. And, um, you know, we played Magic the Gathering for quite a while, and we stopped playing it mostly because... I got sick of it because I didn't. I mean, you. I don't think you ever had a problem with. Oh, I will crush your your um your Sarah Angel. I will rip her wings out. And <laughs> like, I don't really want to kill your Sarah Angel, but I have to do that to win. And, you know, I mean, we we stopped playing Magic the Gathering because of my Care Bear tendencies, not because of yours. Yeah. So I mean, you're more comfortable with conflict, just in general. Yeah, I think. I suppose so yeah. Yeah, you have different predilections. I mean, you, like no game that has a, puts a machine gun in your hand will you ever play, no matter what. So you have different conflict aversion, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Leon asks. His email is called swearing. You often say that your show is a family show, yet every now and then a swear word slips through. So my question is: Do you swear casually, and is it something you try to avoid for the show, or do you try to avoid it altogether? I'll let Jen take that question. He worked in a potty mouth industry for quite a long time. (laughs) And um, actually, he kept his potty mouth at work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, actually, you're not really a a swearer in general, but as a fitting in um, sort of thing. I think you did pick it up. No, yeah. Jen, when we were first dating and we were first married, Jen just loved that I never swore at all. Yep. My, and, my thing was, I'm going to find a man who doesn't drink, doesn't swear, and doesn't uh, smoke. Yeah. And, oh, you swear plenty yourself. Upon occasion, I, <laughs> I, I am able to do that. Yes. Um, but, actually, I mean, I swear a lot, and I've always sworn a lot. I made a concerted effort not to swear around other people who don't swear. I've always been careful about that. And Jen didn't swear as much back in the day. She swears more now. Um, I don't. I say funny things. Yeah. But as Jen said, I worked in an industry where, I mean, I I will not repeat some of the stuff that has been said and everybody just goes with it and everybody, you know, it's, it's working in the video game industry. It's like working on the set of Howard Stern. It's, that's the way it is. And, um, and so I was very comfortable in that and that's the way I kind of tend to talk. And if I'm around other people who talk that way, yeah, that's the way I'm going to talk. Um, I, and I, it's definitely something I work very, very hard to stifle on the show. Um, and I'm always surprised when people say, because as far as I'm concerned, I don't swear at all, but I think for some people, if I say, but, that's considered swearing. Well, maybe pissed off even. And yeah, oh no, I was surprised. Some people said when I said recently in a video I, that, um, you know, I think I think I think Jen got pissed off, or I got pissed off, or or you know, or no, the, the character in the game was really pissed off, and so they're going to attack us now. Pissed off is not even remotely swearing. It's I can't even imagine that. But I was shocked how many people, and I and I just now I, I apologize to everybody. No, I know I just said it like five times right now, but pissed off is not even remotely swearing. But for some people, it is. And so it's, uh, with the exception of this, um, for the purposes of yeah, examples, I, I, I'm going to try not to say pissed off. I, wonder, I, will, I will try to switch it to ticked off or P.O.'d. And, like, to me, sucker. For some reason, Jen thinks sucker is the dirtiest word in the English language. I don't like it. And, yeah, whenever I say, oh, I'm going to get that sucker, <laughs> no, she can't stand it. My radar it. goes, oh! Oh! <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I do have a potty mouth, and I try very, very hard to keep it under control. And my apologies to anybody who's taken aback. I mean, I have no desire to offend anybody, and I'm sorry to anybody who has 
taken aback because I just said PO'd 20 times in the last, I mean, I, you know, if, you know I, I try not to say damn. I try not to say hell. Damn. I think that's another one. I think people will get really? upset when I say hell. Really? But I say, oh, hell. Um, because for some people, that's swearing. And I don't know. It's really weird. I mean, to me, that is so innocuous. And the family I grew up in, you know, I mean, not that. I mean, well, I mean, well, my dad cursed quite a bit, and he sure, um, you know, even though I, I don't know to this well, day, I don't know. I know my mom is religious. I um, mean, yeah, my dad was a sailor. Let's be, <laughs> but you know, he would use Jesus Christ as an epithet <gasps> oh. so often, and I do too. You know, even though I'm totally, live, I mean, I don't think twice about it. We live in Malta, which is seriously heavy-duty Roman Catholic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, crazy major, Roman Catholic. Major, major. Yeah. And the lovely lady, she's what, 70? Yeah. Who dog sits for us. Her name's mm-hmm. Katie. Mm-hmm. She, she's hilarious. She took us aback a, a few times. But she will say, Jesus Christ, Jennifer. <laughs> I was so astounded with the da 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 And yeah. she just sprinkles Jesus Christ in, in her conversation. Yeah. And it's adorable. <laughs> we love it. Yep. But clearly, I mean, she's very... Religious yeah, I know. Person, I don't know. So it's it's, not it's a word for her. It's just a weird topic. Um, and all I can do, I mean, I have no desire to upset anybody. There's, I mean, saying what I want to say, I can say what I want to say a million different ways. And if I can say it in a way that doesn't bother anybody, that's the way I prefer to say it. So that's my intent. Sometimes it slips through, although I never know. It only, it only slips through because I'm not aware that pissed off is actually swearing, which is just amazing to me. Mm. I was urined off. <laughs> or is piss is piss a swear word? I don't know because in I England you take the piss. Right? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, British take the piss all the time. Yep, uh, it's it, it's a, it's an odd topic. Um, and let's see. Then we have Jeanette. Last question. Although we had some other questions, um, <laughs> I, I think maybe we've already answered this. Um, I've heard Rado often mention that Jen is a shark. This is a question for Jen. Do you agree? And if so, how do you find playing with the ultimate Care Bear? Yeah, I don't think I'm a shark. <laughs> um, I think, like I said, I'm probably more competitive anyway. Mm-hmm. But I am trying always to be a better person. And But again, there's nothing wrong with being competitive. I mean, you say that like, I feel poorly that being competitive is somehow a character flaw. It's not at all. It's just not something that floats my boat. Yes, but it does make for a more harmonious relationship if we're both playing to the same standards. Okay. So, yes, I am trying to become more like him in mm-hmm. this way. You want to be like me? He, he, bop, dooba, do we? I want to play like you. <laughs> All right. So that was it. And now we just have a couple of, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the force, honey? Since Nathan did kind of. Oh, let's have or because you didn't get a chance to. Let's have a break. And then people who care can come back after the elevator music. Well, no, no. I mean, there's only three. It's only going to take a minute, and we're and we're done. I mean, this is it. This is the end of the show. Oh, the, the show is over. Unless I what? Looked up the 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 what? skepticism thing. I was going to. Oh, you want to look up skepticism? Okay, all right. So we're going to take a break, Nathan. We're actually going to do a Google search for modern science-based skepticism. And um, folks, if you'd like right now, for the rest of this show, we are not going to talk about games at all. We are going to talk about science-based skepticism, the force. Um, Hillary versus Bernie, and um, favorite songs. Okay, so if you're if you're out, thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you later. So long, bye bye. Otherwise, hold on. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Actually, I think this is really good. I think in the future, 
there will be two separate Q&A. First, the game one, and then the non-game stuff at the end. Because I do know some people just fundamentally don't care. They just want to hear about gamey type stuff. So it's going to work out very well. So prepare for the non-gamey type stuff. <laughs> Starting with, do you have a particular order you would like to hit these questions in, Honey Do you want to do? All right. Then let's do them in the order they came in. Nathan's question. Jen did do a Google search, Nathan, for um, modern science-based skepticism movement. I think she just ended up going to Wikipedia. Yep. And she, she didn't really find anything about mo- it's you know scientific skepticism. It's kind of part and parcel century. with the scientific method. So it's not, although maybe that's what you mean by modern, um, you know, modern reasoning, thinking man, as opposed to you know pre seventeen hundreds. But uh, I don't think. It really, I mean, it's kind of what we assumed it was. You know, the, the, the name kind of gives it away. It makes it pretty clear what we're talking about. So, but Jen said she did find a quote that she really, really liked a lot yeah. about skepticism. And that solidified it for her that that's what she's all about. Well, it's not what I'm all about, but I, it's certainly something I can get behind. So okay. the quote is, skeptics should be focused. Oh, no, the quote. Folks, someone's at the door. We're going to have to come back to that quote later. Okay, well, it's now the next day because it was Anna and Peter at the door. A couple of nice folks from Amsterdam who swung by to play a game and brought some Stroop Waffle. Stroop Waffle! Oh, man, we love Stroop Waffle. Oh, damn, it is so good. Oh, darn. Yes, honey, remember, this is a family show. I believe we discussed that earlier. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Damn, that's some good (laughs) Stroop Waffle. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, so much for the carb thing for that day. We no, also had yep, pizza yep. last night for dinner because we'd already totally biffed it. Yep. <laughs> but that was fun. Yeah. And anyway, we will now continue where we left off because, of course, for you guys, it's only been... A half a second. Yeah. So, honey, I believe you had a quote. Yes, I was going to read this quote, which is uh, on the Wikipedia page, and I love it. It's the fourth fourth one down. Um, and I just... I this, this is something I can totally get behind. It's, it's by Jamie Ian Swiss, who is apparently a magician. Um, which, you know, is good too. But he says, skeptics should be focused on, are focused on, have always been focused on how to think, not what to think. And that really encapsulates everything I think about religious stuff. I think things are going to be different for each person, and we all know the truth within ourselves if we'll sit around and think about it for a bit. And it's, it's how you come to that conclusion, not necessarily what you think, but how you've come to the conclusion. And if it's really true for you, then who, who am I or who is anyone to say, oh, that's wrong. That can't be that way because it's not the same truth for me. Well, who cares what the truth is for me? The truth for you is what the truth is for you. And how you came about that is, is completely, <clears throat> excuse me, completely your own journey. And I totally respect that. So. Okay. I love the how to think thing. And that en- encompasses everything in life. I mean, it's, you know, not following the herd, just doing, um, you know, everything that society expects of you. Like, say, if you're a woman having children automatically without thinking about it. If you want children, have them. Absolutely. But have, have thought it through and be prepared for the 20 to 70 year commitment that children are. Um, you know, don't just get a dog for Christmas. It's that too is a 15 to 20 year commitment. Um you know, don't just go into a career because it pays well. Go into something that you love, that that makes your heartstrings sing. It, it just really applies to absolutely everything. So 
I think that's great. It also applies to the educational system. It's very much about tests and passing uh, what what other people think you should know. And I guess for a little while when you're in school, you have to do that. But your own education for the rest of your life is all about what interests you and uh, and basically creating sort of this whole tapestry of your life. I just I just love that. How to think, not what to think. Okay, that was probably an awful lot. My goodness. How's the view up there from that soapbox? That was pretty nice, Honey Pie. Well, the view is pretty good today, actually. It's sunny outside. and That's some good stuff. <laughs> well, I can say that my soapbox has landed me in a pretty good position, yeah. and probably due to luck as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's all a grand scheme, but yeah. yeah. Is that now one of your top ten favorite quotes? That seemed to really hit you. Ooh. Well, I think that just generally encompasses everything I think about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, okay then. I guess it would that be the would that be the end of that question? We should move on to the other two quickie ones. Oh well, the question was, what do we think about skepticism? Mm-hmm. And I think it's good. Okay. Because it's people questioning <laughs> what they've been taught as a just general route bit of information. All right. Okay. Well then, you ready to move on? I guess so. Okay. Yes. Next up, um, Charlene asks. Well, she talks a little bit about her own preferences, but then in the end she says, and now I know this might be a sensitive subject, and I understand if you don't want to tackle it, many others might not, but for you and Jen, are you pro-Hillary or pro-Bernie? Ah, right. I remember this a bit from yesterday, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot more to say about it. Mm -hmm. First of all, let me preface my comments by saying I do not have my finger on the pulse of anything political, I just refuse to put myself through that kind of stress and angst and everything. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I just really don't need that in my life. So, but in general, I think it'd be wonderful to have a woman as president. First mm-hmm. off, we are highly due for that. Second of all, I think Hillary is an extremely educated, exceptionally intelligent person who has done service for our country for the last 30 years, 40 years, probably. And that she could probably do an awful lot of good as president. Third, I think having a first man in the White House would be wonderful. And I think Bill Clinton has a lot of experience and intelligence in the political field and could probably do an awful lot of good as the first man. The first gentleman, I guess? I imagine that's probably what you'd be called, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that is a as a double whammy is a mighty fine package deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people might still have some problems with you know, say the Monica Lewinsky stuff, but I don't know. I'm over that. I'm actually, I'm not that concerned about um, that sort of thing, actually. I think that was probably a private transaction between two individuals, two consenting adults, and I'm not that fussed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Also, I know that it's considered a a problem that Hillary might have all these political connections where she might owe people favors or whatever from just being in the political system for so long. But on the other hand, I think she's going to be in a much better position to get a lot of stuff done. Duck and I have been watching a very interesting BBC production on Obama's White House, and it really goes into, oh my gosh, all of the challenges that Obama had to face, especially the economic meltdown that he essentially prevented in his first couple months in the White House, and well, first year really, and how that really derailed his whole plans for all of the things he wanted to get accomplished, because 
his number one job became saving the economy. And if he hadn't done that, goodness knows where we would be right now. So looking at that and looking at all the hope and support and um, ability that he had with, with having both houses Democratic, and he was not even able to get a lot of his stuff done. I think having Bernie come in, who is kind of an outsider and who doesn't have any political support, <clears throat> I think Bernie won't be as effective because although he's got a lot of goodwill behind him, he just doesn't have the connections. And I think Hillary does. And I think so for that reason, she'll get a lot more stuff actually accomplished for her presidency. And so I am hoping that she will win for that as well. You know, the other thing is, I think that if you take a look at Donald Trump and his supporters and kind of that whole vibe of what's going on, you know, that they're hitting people, um, they're very angry. They're uh, kind of oh, out for themselves, I guess, maybe protecting themselves. It, it seems. I mean, again, I try not to be involved in any of this news-related stuff because it just makes me so unhappy. Um, whereas you look at the stuff that goes on at Bernie Sanders where people are giving hugs and it seems like a much more open um, kind of continuation of Obama's we're in this together. Let's get this sorted out together. We can lift the entire country. We can um, all work together. It's going to be good for everybody kind of a thing. I, I, you know, I'm, what can I say? I'm much more of that. I lean much more towards let's work this all out together. So, and I think the Democrats, Democrats tend to be more that way anyway. Um, uh, as a Republican type leaning, I certainly don't like to pay taxes. So I can, <laughs> I can say I prefer not to pay taxes, but, or certainly pay my fair share, but no more. Uh, that's about my only Republican leaning, I think. Otherwise, I'm pretty Democratic. Mm -hmm. So, wow, that was a lot of stuff. Yeah, I apparently had more to say than you <clears throat> thought you did. Well, just generally. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I can't speak to the specifics of any particular rally or mm -hmm. speech or anything, because I'm not watching them. Yeah. Well, you watched a couple of the Democratic debates. That's about yes. all you've watched. I, I got them on the TV, and you sat there for the hour and a half and watched... You didn't watch any of the later ones. I think you only. I think you watched a couple of the early ones. Yeah, the early so ones. So you didn't see the ones where Hillary and Bernie started going at each other a bit more. It was back when they were all very yeah respectful. Yes, well, they they were always respectful, but um, they're certainly a a, uh, a a nice alternative to the circus sideshow that were the Republican debates. Which I didn't. To watch be fair, any of. well, well, they were certainly entertaining to watch, if nothing else. But anyway, okay, well, my thoughts, I uh, pretty much agree with everything Jen said. I am definitely, uh, wait, how do you say it? I've never actually said it out loud. A uh, Hillarealist. Um, I know. Hillarist. Uh, yeah, yeah, because. Hillarealist. Uh, yeah, because we're realists be and we're for Hillary. Oh. I was for Hillary, as was Jen, back in 08. Yep. I mean, Obama was great. Um, I was happy. He was a fine second choice in the 08 race. I still thought they, that the Clintons would be a good team in the White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we voted for Hillary back in 08. We'll definitely do it again in 2016. And, yeah, I mean, everything Jen said, I think it's more like 50 years of public service she's given. She's a brilliant woman. She's easily the most qualified for the job um, with all of her years in public service, uh, you know, with all of her experience working with the leaders of literally the entire world. Yep. She has done so much good over her life, and she has always been a tireless champion for so many important causes. And now... 
I know there are going to be some Bernie supporters, probably many Bernie supporters, who are listening to this and uh, who are disagreeing with all of that. And, I mean, it would take way too long to try to counter every single point that I have seen. But it's amazing, honey. I don't think you realize, because you're right, you just stay away from it entirely. There is a, a sizable portion of Bernie's followers who literally hate Hillary, vehemently, who actually think she would be worse than Trump, who would literally rather vote for, if they can't have Bernie, they would vote for Trump over Hillary because they think she is literally the devil incarnate. Oh my now, gosh. It's, it's, I know, it's unthinkable to you that anybody would think that because, I'm, I'm sorry folks, if you happen to be one of the ones who believe that, that is so far removed from reality, it's, it's mind-boggling. Has it been propagandized? It's, yes. Basically, there is a sizable portion of the American electorate <clears throat> who have, for all intents and purposes, bought into 40 years of Republican smear campaign and tactics against the Clintons. The reality, you know, and they believe, well, you know what? Um, the email scandal, it keeps coming back up, so there must be something there. And you know what? Yeah, Benghazi keeps coming up, so there must still be something there. And Whitewater keeps coming back up, so there must still be something there. And, um, you know, Barry Gold, you know, all this stuff that has been thrown her way for literally 50 years of public life because... Why is that happening? Because as it happens, she is actually a tireless champion for change. And um, her political opponents have literally thrown everything and the kitchen sink at her. And people say, well, you know what? Where there's smoke, there's fire. If they keep coming back, there must be something. She must be dirty to the core because they wouldn't keep finding all these new problems. And I'm sorry, where there's smoke... Sometimes there's just a guy working a smoke machine. <laughs> and that's the reality here because you can't find anything. Nothing sticks to her. She's like Teflon. Every trumped up, completely blown out of proportion, I'm, I'm using air quotes now, scandal that has ever been thrown her way has ultimately been proven to be completely a house of cards, total falsehoods. That's going to be the case with the email scandals, I mean, the FBI isn't going to find anything because there's not anything because she's not the devil incarnate. She has just been a very powerful woman who fights for change that very powerful forces will do anything to stop. Mm. And if you believe any of that stuff, then, well, as Jen was saying earlier, you, um, what was your quote? What was your skeptic's quote, honey pie? Stop being, stop thinking what they've told you to think. Start learning how to think for yourself. Basically. Exactly. That's the reality of it. Um, <clears throat> like, and probably the number one thing, and now, and, and the problem, I mean, I'll talk about Bernie in a second, but uh, I love the idea of Bernie, but I, I, do, I do not too. like how he has run his campaign because, well, I, well, the, my fundamental issue with Bernie is he has run a very passive-aggressive, divisive campaign. Bernie is all about us versus them. It's all about, you know what? Um, Wall Street, evil. Bankers, evil. Rich people, evil. It's us versus them over and over and over again. It's a, it's a, it's a common thread through his entire campaign. And I believe it's, you know, it's, it's not 
It's something he believes in his core because, yeah, he is a a, a product of the '60s. Um, you know, he is a hippie love child who <laughs> has grown into an old crotchety you know senator. Um, you know, and, and it's amazing. I mean, he's a great guy, but I have never really cared for his um, well. You know, all of Wall Street's evil. All I mean, because that everything he talks about is such a ridiculously simplistic, moralistic, black and white view that has absolutely nothing to do with the reality of the world. The world is not black and white. People are not evil or good. And for Bernie to reduce everything down to such simplistic terms doesn't really do credit for how to actually solve these problems. People are often um, on Hillary's case because they say she flip-flops a lot. Poppycock, the reality (laughs) is people um, choose to interpret her as flip-flopping because the reality is when a new topic comes up, whether it's the Alaska pipeline or any number of things, Hillary won't just get up on a stump and immediately say, here's what I believe and this is what it's got to be, black and white. Hillary, without fail, will always say, well, you know what? It's a complex topic. There's a lot of things going on here, both pro and con. I'm not ready to give you an answer right now. Um, you know, I may be leaning towards this. Uh, this is a particular concern of mine. Um, and then people will say, well, you know what? We need a black and white answer. So she's for it or she's against it. People will interpret her as saying that. And then a few years later, a few months later, a few weeks later, I mean, when she actually does make her position known and, um, you know, and, and so, okay, you know, on the balance, this is what I think it needs to be. Well, she flip-flopped. No, she didn't flip-flop. She, you chose to interpret what she said as a flip-flop. I've seen that so many times. Um, like uh, the, the, the fight for 15, people say she's flip-flopping on that, completely ignoring the fact that there are articles from like a year ago where she was said she was for the, oh, she's only just now saying she's, it's, uh, people have such short attention spans, it's so ridiculous. Oh, right. See, this is why Jen doesn't follow politics because I could get myself so wrapped up. But anyway, there is a cottage industry and there has been now for decades devoted to, um, Bashing Hillary? Bashing Hillary. And people have been brainwashed against her. Now, the number one argument against her is, oh, she's dirty, she's corrupt, she is in the pocket of big business. Because... She, um, you know, there are super PACs. She does accept donations. Um, she does everything within, you know, legal, legal. legal things. But yeah, she takes as much money as she can. And people, and Bernie consistently beats her over the head with this over and over and over again. Because, you know, what's his quote? Uh, well, you know what? Those Wall Street guys, I might not like them, but they're smart. So they must know what they're getting, i.e., she is literally corrupt and she is being bought. Now, first of all, that's an example, again, of a really I'm sorry, dickish, passive-aggressive, totally dick move that Bernie's been hammering for, for, the, for the last year. Um, Hillary has always been, I'm, I'm sorry, a much more positive campaigner. She, um, she questions Bernie's um, policy ideas and goals. Bernie questions her character as a person. Mm. That makes Bernie a dick. And Hillary, an actually respectful person. And we'll put that aside right now. I know it's politics. Hey, sometimes you got to be a dick. But anyway, the reality is that, again, is such a ridiculously myopic, simplistic, reductive view of the reality of the modern political system. One, um, 
Oh, man. Oh, my God. I could go on this forever. But first of all, yes, Hillary does take money from Wall Street. You know who else she takes money from? The environmental lobbies, teachers unions, um, academia. And you know what? She takes a lot more money from all these sources that most people would consider benign or even good. If you want to reduce the world to good and evil, the vast majority of Hillary's raised campaign funds does not come. It's only a small percentage. It's, I think it's like 10 or 15%. Um, or 20 at the most, of all of her campaign funds comes from Wall Street, banks, um, pharma, that kind of thing. The evil, all the evil companies out there. So, my question to you, if you think Hillary is so corrupt that she'll just do whatever anybody says if they give her money, why don't you apply that towards teachers' unions? Why don't you apply that towards academia? Why don't you apply that towards the environment? Why does no one complain about the fact that she's in the pocket of Big Green? Because she's taken a lot more money from those sources. Um, so that always drives me batty. That Again, because people are only looking through a peephole at a small, tiny little portion of the picture. The second thing is, people say, you know, Bernie's thing of, well, you know what, if Wall Street's giving her money, that must mean she's corrupt and she'll do whatever they say. Okay, how about this as an alternative way to look at it? Wall Street won is not evil. Sorry, I know that's a mind-numbing thought for people, (laughs) but um, the financial sector, which employs millions of Americans and millions of people all around the world, these millions of people are not evil. Think about that for a second. Now, maybe that's impossible for you to imagine. They're evil. They're scumbags. You, You guys saw Wolf of Wall Street. You know they're all like Leonardo DiCaprio. First of all, they're not. But, okay, sorry, you're just going to have to come to terms with that. Yes, there are a few bad eggs. There are some people who have done bad stuff. That is not reason to paint an entire millions of people with that stuff. But if you were to accept, just as a hypothetical, that maybe the financial sector of our economy is not implicitly evil, then maybe you might want to look at another reason that they would back Hillary over Bernie. Maybe it's because... They want, like all of us, to be successful in life. They want to be able to pursue their dreams. And their, and maybe they would like somebody in office that they can work with. Someone in office who isn't hell-bound on destroying them and tearing <laughs> them down. Yep. Which Bernie is the first to admit. That's what he wants to do. Break them up! Um, and Hillary said, well, actually, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. If you actually compare Glass-Steagall to, um, you know, break them up! Okay, Bernie, it's not quite that simple. There's actually a little bit more going on. And in fact, with the, you know, the current legislation we have, it's more powerful. Break them up! Okay, Bernie, um, we're actually trying to have a conversation about the reality of how Glass-Steagall wouldn't have actually prevented the actual economic meltdown in you know, the 2000s. Break them up! Okay, Bernie, clearly we're not going to get very far with you because it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and that's... So, oh man, I could go on about this for hours. I could go on about this for days. Um, but hardcore Bernie fanatics, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. The world isn't as simple as it's been painted to you. Um, things aren't a, a, a black and white morality tale. Um, people are not evil. Uh, you know, people do follow their own... It's, oh, man. But, but then, okay, so a little bit more about Bernie. My other issue with him is, and it's why I'm a Hillarialist, is... That everything else I just set aside. I mean, I, I, I don't think Bernie's a bad person. I know for a fact he respects Hillary. 
Because he said it many, many times. He's just falling into the, well, you know, I'm, I'm the underdog, I'm behind, I have to beat her down wherever I can. I'll do it in a ostensibly respectful way. I'll be very passive-aggressive about my slams against her character, even though I know better, because I've worked with her, I've talked with her. And, by the way, as soon as he loses, he's, of course, going to tell everybody to vote for her. So you're going to have to make your peace with that, Bernie fans. Because you, you can't suddenly say, oh, he was a champion of truth, justice, in the American way. He was the only beacon of shining light. As soon as he tells you to vote for Hillary, which he's going to do, are you then going to say, ah, he's a part of the system. They've gotten to him. No. Maybe. Just maybe. Um, he's telling you the truth when he, because he will tell you she is a respectful person who is America's best, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so my bigger problem with Hillary is not, or I'm sorry, not with Hillary, with Bernie, is not with Bernie. My problem with Bernie is with his supporters, is with you, Bernie bros, because um, B- Bernie is the first to admit that his entire platform is ridiculous. It is absolutely, insanely wide-eyed, optimistic, completely out of touch with reality, has no chance of actually succeeding. All the stuff he wants to do, unless he has a political revolution. He said this many, many times. And then all his thoughts say, yeah, we're ready for the revolution. Bring the revolution, Bernie. Here's the small print of that contract that you are signing. A political revolution means... After the 2016 presidential race is over, you don't go back to your day jobs. You don't go back to World of Warcraft. You don't go back to your regular life. You stay involved. You stay activated. You stay motivated. You stay radical. You continue to be in the face. You continue to march on Washington. You continue to write your senator. You continue to organize. You continue to do all this stuff. And here's the reality. You're not going to do that. Let's not kid ourselves. Same thing that happened. A Bernie is Obama 2.0 in this regard. Hope and change. This is what it's going to be. Everybody, we're going to get in there. We're going to bring back civility. We're going to work with people. Things are going to change. Two years later, 2010 comes around. All of um, the hope and changers are... Oh, man. I, I want to say a bad word, but I'm going to say, screw Obama, instead of what I would really say. <laughs> if, um, screw Obama. He produced nothing. I am now disenfranchised. I am walking away. And everybody says 2008 is the most important election of our lives. 2016 is the most important election of our lives. That's ridiculous. Presidential elections, really, at the end of the day, are not that important. The midterm elections are the important ones. 2010 was arguably the most important election of the modern generation. And that is the one where all those Barack Obama hope and changers walked away, could not be bothered to show up, and gave Congress to the Tea Party. Gave it to the opposition, and that's when everything fell apart. And that's on these... Young, wide-eyed, idealistic. If we get the right guy into the White House, everything's going to change. And you know, and then they walked away. Bernie two, is 2.0 because if he actually did make it into the White House, and we're going to do it, folks. We're going to, you know, everybody's going to walk away and say, "Okay, job done. We got him in the White House. The revolution has occurred. Let's um, have milk and honey for everybody, uh, chicken in every pot. Hurrah! And everybody will just walk away. And then, to th- and then Bernie will hit a brick wall. Yep. 
And two because years he later, have the support. Yep, in 2018, everybody will be bored with it and disenfranchised and angry, and um, will just not show up. And we'll have a repeat. It'll be the it'll, 2018. Will be 2010 all over again. And um, yeah, Bernie truly believes because he is a product of the 60s that we can have something like what happened with um, Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and an entire nation of young people rose up and they didn't go away. They stayed around. They got involved. An entire generation. Bernie was a member of that generation. By the way, so was Hillary. Anybody who says Hillary is a racist, oh my God, don't even get me started on that. Oh, it's ridiculous, honey. A racist? The, the slant, yes. I mean, that's a not uncommon meme that the Clintons are racist. Um, because they brought about they, they because of a, a a quote that's taken way out of context that Hillary said in um, the uh, 90s and because of the 94 crime bill which Bernie voted for too by the way let's not forget it's it's absolutely anyway sorry I'm not going to go back on that um, <clears throat> people just the entire I mean everything levied against um, Hillary comes about because. Our entire news media is soundbite driven now. Yeah. Everything, every quote is taken out of context. Everything is reduced to a 144 character headline. <laughs> and um, that's the problem. Hillary is nuanced. Hillary does not give simple black and white answers. And, those, and that's, that's her biggest political failing. That she doesn't just come right out and say yes or no. She says maybe a lot because she knows how complicated things are. Because she's smart and she's been doing this for a long time. And um, that makes it easier for, for the simplistic yes-no folks to... Well, anyway, sorry. My, that's my problem with Bernie is his faith in young Americans. I do not share his faith. I have faith in Bernie. I do not have faith in his followers. And that's why I can't, in good conscience, support him. In the same way, I couldn't, in good conscience, support Obama over Hillary. Barack over Hillary. Um, and turns out, we were kind of right, because everybody abandoned him in 2010. If they hadn't, and he was out there. He was given, He was continuing with his hope and change. Hey, you know what, folks? It's been a tough two years. We need you now more than ever. We need to get keep control because of all the stuff with um, oh, um, you know, Ted Kennedy dying and the the blockade of um, um, Al Franken getting voted in. So there is a lot of crazy stuff that I mean, everybody says. Well, Obama failed us because he had the majority in, in um, the Congress and the Senate. It's, again, not as simple as that. It wasn't as black and white as you've been led to believe. And they do, wouldn't be bothered to vote. And we got what we got. And you know what? They always say it, and it's true. Um, the po- you know, a, a, a country, you know, they get the leaders that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, 2010 <clears throat> was abysmal. It was... You know, we should be ashamed of ourselves, Democrats as a whole, for our showing in 2010. <laughs> I believe Bernie in the White House will give us the same thing in 2018. Hillary in the White House, Hillary is ready to work with everybody. Yep. Because Hillary doesn't reduce things black and white. Hillary doesn't vilify and demonize. Hillary realizes that, you know what, Wall Street, they're not evil people. Um, you know, uh, uh, Corporations are not... Ne- uh, corporations arguably are evil. Have too but, much power, actually. Yeah, but a corporation is composed of people. And people are not evil. If you work with the people, as opposed to demonize the corporation, you can actually move forward. Yeah. And that is what Hillary offers. 
Um, yeah, so that's my feeling. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> be interesting to see what, 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 what is said there. But anyway, so let's uh, end it now with something a little bit lighter. Um, Justin says, you recently talked about your favorite bands and musical groups, but you didn't really talk about your favorite songs. Do you have any? Oh, I have a couple that I recently... Well, Jen, I mean, that was the other thing. You had to go back up and look because you knew a song, but you couldn't think of the name of it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you know how it is. When you're trying to think of it, sometimes <clears throat> it... Yeah, so, honey, what are your favorite songs? Oh, well, okay. So a couple of years ago, Jason Mraz came out with a lovely song called Living in the Moment. Okay. Um, which is really fantastic. And it's about just letting go of stuff that you've done in the past and taking the time to appreciate the now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really good one. I'd recommend you at least look at the lyrics of that and maybe have a little hum along. Um, and then the other one is um, a new favorite, actually, probably in the last several months. It's Andy Grammer has really come to my attention. And he's got a song called Masterpiece, which I think encapsulates an awful lot of what I'm thinking these days, which is just basically you take a look at your life and you think, what do you want your final, say, if you imagine your life as a painting, what do you want it to look like? You know, what elements do you want to be in there? What kind of colors do you want to have painted with? What kind of experiences do you want to be portraying? That sort of thing. And just taking a look at, at the big picture and making sure that you're including the important stuff and not getting bogged down in the stupid little stuff. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Jen really listens closely to her lyrics. <laughs> well, there's, you know, I think... They seep in, you know, they... They do, because especially with me, I am so susceptible to advertising. This is (laughs) another reason why I love the modern TV is because you download stuff and it doesn't have commercials. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if I'm in a shopping mall or something and there's just music playing over the PA, it just creeps into my mind. (laughs) And I'm humming that song, you know, like a day later or something and have been humming it for the last Mm -hmm. 24 hours. So, no, I think it's really important what you let into your brain, especially into your subconscious when you're, like, say, when you're working and you're not really paying attention to what you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm careful about what I listen yeah. to. Okay. Any others? Any oh, childhood yeah. favorites? Any? <laughs> well, of course, with the Jungle Book coming out soon. Uh, oh, it's um, already out. It came out. Oh, it is? I, I think it's out now, yeah. <gasps> See, I'm, I, my husband is my uh, entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. But Captain. we never go to the theater, yeah. But yeah, he, he sorts all that stuff yeah. out for me. Um, apparently, so it's excellent. Attention. Apparently, it's absolutely amazing. <clears throat> well, it'll be wonderful. Um, yeah. My dad took me to see Jungle Book when I was a kid, so it's always been a very special movie memory kind of thing for me. But mm-hmm. um, we, we all, we'll often sing Bare Necessities or any of the other Jungle Book movies. Be books. like you, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Bare Necessities is, is okay. along the same lines. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've been listening to a lot of Billy Joel, too, on my Pandora. Mm-hmm. And Billy Joel, hello. For the last 30 years, 40 years, has been singing about all of the stuff I think about now, which is don't fall into the, you know, common traps. Think for yourself, you know. Um, what was the Booze and Buddies song where his friend moves to California to live uh-huh. a better life and gives mm-hmm. up the rat race? I'm like, wow, Billy Joel has, has got it going on, man, and has for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, I all mean, right. yeah, so I guess one of my things is now I listen to lyrics to hear what people are actually singing about and and what, what the meaning of songs are, rather than, oh, I just like the beat of that. Wow. I feel like I want to go back and edit this so I can go first, because Jen is, um, because I have to admit, I don't really <laughs> listen to the lyrics that much. I do just care about the beat. I mean, half of my favorite songs of all time, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you more than three or four lyrics out of them. So I got to follow that, oh. all of Jen's well, deep. Well, that's okay. This is meaningful. These are things that affect my life. And I'm like, 
Well, I just like how it sounds. <laughs> That's okay. You just blew me away on Hillary. Well, well, it's I don't know. I I don't know. I probably just ranted a bit. It was a bit silly. Apologies to any Bernie fans out there. I'm talking about the other ones. I'm not talking about you. I'm sure you would have stayed politically activated afterwards. It's all the other ones. But anyway, um, for me, I did not do any research on this. And uh, let's see. Oh, what? Uh, and I what the heck? I'm just just to try and um, I, I childhood. What would I really like? I had, when I was a kid, I had um, one of those little portable record players. You know, it was like, it was red plastic and <laughs> you, you had a handle and you could take it with you wherever yeah. and plug it into a wall and you opened it up and then you could put a little 45 on mm-hmm. it because I think it only took 45s. Well, it was a small portable. Yeah, it was one of those little portable record, you know, that was as portable <laughs> as music got back then. I had that with just a little single mono speaker and it sounded terrible. Um, but I had that and man, I had... Chipmunks Rock and Roll. I forget the exact name of it, but it was the Chipmunks, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and they were singing, you know, not songs of the seventies, but it was like, um, oh, Downtown, and and I remember I loved Downtown, sung by the Chipmunks. Um, so it's always weird for me to hear it now sung as a cover or anything like that. But Downtown, where are the lights? Yeah, it's, <laughs> that was a big one. And then the other thing I listened to that on that record player a lot was. The Disneyland soundtrack, which we had bought one year when we went to Disneyland. And um, that's why I can still sing most of Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Pirate's Life for Me. We pillage, my heart is Yo-Ho. Because I've listened to the Pirates of the Caribbean song like five billion times. But I love the Electric Light Street Parade electronica song, I guess. Um, you know, I still, it's emblazoned my brain. So I listen to those things a million times, those two records specifically. And I remember Downtown. Um, and then when I got older, when I got into high school, I got into the Beatles so hard. The Beatles were the first record I ever bought for myself. And in fact, there in Bremerton, when I was in Belfair, there was a little... Um, used vinyl store because you know this was people still bought vinyl. Um, CDs were coming in, but you could still buy records and um, and and oh, cassette tapes. Yeah, that's what it was. So I went to this place, right? And um, you know, and, and bought every single Beatles album there was v- vinyl, and um, you know, took and you know they were scratchy and whatnot, but I took them and transcribed them all to cassette tapes, and then I had literally the entire Beatles. Um, uh, catalog from beginning to end, and that was literally the soundtrack of my high school. Um, I was kind of a shy, introverted kid for most of my high school. I had a crazy acne pizza face, really extreme. You know, one of those really, really bad cases. And I was really, uh, and I'd grown up on a boat, so I didn't really have any social skills and whatnot. And I just walked around with my hoodie before hoodies were cool. I always wore my hoodie, and no one was why, why is he? Why is that kid wearing that hoodie? Um, um, and uh, just listen to Beatles. You know, the old stuff, the late stuff. Of all their songs, I think my favorite is probably Obladi, um, Oblada, or maybe Lovely Rita, or um, um, Lonely People. Man, lo- Lonely People can make me cry. Yeah, me too. But I'm not going to cry right now. Um, but anyway, so that, and, uh, and it was weird. Throughout the uh, 70s, um, you know, I, I had my little record player. Those are the ones I liked. But my family, we listened to country and western, because that's... 
whenever we were in the car and we turned on the radio, because we didn't have a radio at home, it was mostly in the car, all my car rides, and we drove across country. We had a National Lampoon's style vacation where pretty much everything that happened to Chevy Chase and family, mm-hmm. pretty much almost all of that stuff happened to us too, just about. It was absolutely insane. Um, and we listened to nothing but Oak Ridge Boys and Dolly Parton and um, you know Loretta Lynn and Willie Nelson. Man, it took me forever to get used to the Pet Shop Boys um, version of Always On My Mind. It always felt wrong to me because for me it was always Willie Nelson's Always On My Mind. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I am a very deeply well-versed in 50s, 60s, and 70s era country western. I haven't really listened to it since then. So, and I've got a lot of favorite songs there. I mean, I love best, every song in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is just absolutely amazing. Um, oh man, and uh, oh Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, that was I mean we we even though my family was not religious and I'm certainly not religious, we watched that every year at Christmas. I absolutely loved it. I think because that was about my only ex- exposure to rock and roll in the '70s was Jesus Christ Superstar and the Chipmunks rock and roll uh, cover album. Because um, obviously I, I preferred rock and roll to the country and western, but that's all I ever got. So that's a big part of my childhood. I love that. I mean, I love all that music. And um, let's see. And then it was heavy into the Beatles. And um, also Dire Straits. I really got heavy into Dire Straits. My dad loved Dire Straits. So we listened to that a lot. We had a lot of their albums on cassette at that point. Um, And then when I went off to college and I could finally do whatever I want, that's when I actually started. Oh, my God. Where did all this rock? I missed, I missed all of the music of the 80s, because all I was listening to was the Beatles. I missed all the music of the 70s, um, you know, because I had this very myopic view. And so I just got into everything. I mean, and um, let's see. And uh, what song did I listen to the most then? I think I mentioned when I was talking about bands, Transvision Vamp, I love Tell That Girl to Shut Up. And I love Def Leppard's Pour That Sugar on Me. Pour oh. Some Sugar on Me. I don't care. I mean, it was just, I know those were silly and cheesy and all that, but it was like, my gosh, I've never listened to any music like that. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, and I kind of miss the 80s. I mean, nowadays I'm kind of into 80s music, but I missed it at the time because I was kind of snobbish about all the music because none of this is real. I mean, I, I want real guitars. I, want, I mean, I don't want synth drums and all that. But yeah, so in the 80s, and uh, oh, yeah, but I'm going to say probably the sound of my college years was pour some sugar on me and tell that girl to shut up, uh, which there is no great deeper meaning. And uh, actually, it was weird. When we were in Texas for a while, I can't remember the names of me, but I was actually doing a lot of research on hip-hop because we were going to do a game... Um, called John Singleton's Fear and Respect. And I didn't really know anything about urban uh, life or, you know, other than having watched, you know, Boys in the Hood and and other films. So for a while, I got very heavy into hip-hop. And I can't remember any of the specific songs, but the ones I was listening to as I was driving back and forth to work, I think DMX uh, was the one who I really enjoyed the most. But, okay, I'm skipping ahead because I think at this point, I can probably come to what is probably my single favorite song of all time. And this was early in my years. Um, this is in the was mid to late nineties when I was working on siphon filter, <clears throat> and working on siphon filter was very very tough. It was a small team trying to make a very big game. We were way over ambitious. We were in over our heads. We had no idea what we were doing. And then as we were getting as we were towards the finish line and we could see the light at the end of the tunnel, um, 
Metal Gear explodes. And everybody talks about Metal Gear, and nobody cares about us. And, I mean, all we see is all these... You know, Metal Gear is beating us to the punch. Everything we're doing, they're doing ten times better than us. And the entire team was so insanely demoralized. I mean, it was all I could do to bring myself to work. Jenna had no idea. I don't think you had any idea just how... I mean, Metal Gear destroyed us as a team. Yeah, but I hardly saw you. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing. And you hardly saw me because that's when I was working, you know, 20-hour days, seven days a week. For a while, I would not come home at all. I would just never leave the building. And that was really tough for Jen. Mm -hmm. And Jen insisted, look, you have to come home for dinner. That's all I'm asking. Come home for dinner. And so we did that. So I'd come home for a couple hours, have dinner, and then just go back to work. And the thing is... (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) So silly. But you know, it was tough. It was a tough time. So I didn't, and it was ironic because I didn't live very far away. I lived like three minutes away from work to home. Just driving home, it's so easy yeah. to come home. So when I drive back to work, and it was like, ah, oh, I can't even do this. It's over. We're doomed. All this work we've done for whatever it was—a year and a half, eighteen months—it's all for naught. Metal Gear is going to destroy us. Nobody's going to care. And um, this was when we got um, our first MP3 player. And we had an MP3 player in the car. Uh, and there was a song that was very popular at the time. And nowadays, it's very popular to bash on this song. But I listened. That was the song I listened to. because It was pretty much played the exact like the time it took to get back to work. And it was... <laughs> Do you know what it is? Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> this was a hard, hard time in our lives. It was... No, no, no. No, no, no. It was... Um, uh, Chumba Wumba, tough. Oh, thumping. I get knocked down. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I get up again. And I'm never gonna break me down. I get knocked down, and I get up again. Yeah. So I shouted that song at the top of my lungs <sighs> when I drove back to work. It was so. Jen talked about lyrics and meaning and all that. I guess this is an example of lyrics that had a strong meaning for me because it kept me going. That song. God, I'm such a... Oh, let's calm down for a second. So that was a really important song to me. And it is to this day. I mean, it's a great song. I mean, I, I, I don't care about all the drinking stuff. The, uh, whiskey drink, the lager drink, cider drink. So, uh, songs are even good times and bad times. That's a good lyric. But the main refrain is just so good. And that's the way I felt. And it would get me going and get me revved up for another another 22 hours of hell. And that's what got me through. So to this day, that song is very meaningful for me. But I don't think it's my favorite anymore, in all honesty. Because, uh, uh, let's see, then what? Uh, yeah, so I listen to hip-hop for a while. And, uh, and I've, um, you know, these days, oh, I listen to house and trance music for a while. Uh, but actually, you know, and I said Beatles and Dire Straits are still my favorite bands. I mean, I mean, I've got we've got the Tub Thumping CD, and I've ripped it all to MP3, and still uh, the only that's the only song of theirs that ever really resonated with me for for that particular reason. But there's a new song that uh, it was a huge monster hit, and nowadays it's kind of hip for everybody to bag on it because it it's been overplayed, and they're all kind of sick of it. And I understand that, but I still think. It's a very great song. It's a powerful song. They're trying not to cry singing about it. Okay, if I don't mention any of the lyrics, I'll probably be fine. But seriously, 
Uh, this is on our rotation now. And if it, I have to be careful not to listen to it too close because, again, the lyrics get me and they will make me cry. <sighs> okay. Take a minute, Honey Pie. I've thought of another song. What's another song, Honey Pie? Okay. This is one from probably 10 years ago, and it's a Jewel song because I wanted to say. Ah, Jewel, of course. You love Jewel. I love Jewel. Um, but she's got a song called Life Uncommon. And it's all about, again, deciding what you want your life to be about and supporting things that are important to you and, and not letting all the small stuff get to you. So that's a good one. And she's got such a beautiful voice. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, could you guess what the song I was about to mention is, honey? I'm sorry. I've, I've been thinking about my own song. Oh, right. You were trying to right, to stretch out. Okay. Well, hopefully I've calmed down a bit. The song I'm talking about that is maybe my new favorite, or it might still be Tub Thumping, is Let It Go. Uh, which, you mean from Frozen? From Frozen, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. It's an amazing song. Uh, and, again, you know, the fundamental message of that song, because maybe this is why I don't listen to the lyrics and songs too much, because <laughs> I would get too emotionally wrapped up in it. But Let It Go is such a powerful message. And I love, I love that, I'm sorry, parents, you're so sick of it. Hearing your kids sing it five bajillion times in the car. I know it's getting nuts, but like Jen was saying, these things seep into your brain and they can affect you. So just be happy that such a powerful, positive message is sinking into your kids' brains of empowerment and you know, being yourself and uh, letting go of expectations so you can be your best you mm-hmm. and all that. It's such a wonderful song. I remember when we watched Frozen, um, you know, because we watched it way late. We always see movies way, way late because we don't see them in the theater. We wait until they come out at home. And I, I somehow, we over here in Malta, we hadn't even, we didn't know about the Frozen phenomenon. And uh, when that song played, just completely out of the blue, and just in the middle of this, a, a nice little Disney film. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good film. It's not the best one they've ever done, but it's nice. But this showstopper, just, I, I mean, I was crying at the end of it. It was strong. Yeah, so it's an amazing song. So those are probably my two favorite songs. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> Jeez, Justin. Jeez, Justin. Ah, man, I gotta... It's not like we haven't cried enough lately. Yeah, anyway. I know, exactly. Jeez. Sorry, folks. Okay. I probably could wait until that till we're done. Because I think we are done. That was the last question. So oh, those great. are a few of our favorite songs. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, did you have another one? Nope, I'm done. All right, I think I am too. Because uh, there's still some stuff in my nose. So, <laughs> yeah, Jen's right. Songs do get to you. They do seep in. Um, and that's it, folks. Uh, thanks for uh, making it through that silliness. <laughs> um, but yo, know, heck, this only happens because you people keep asking these sorts of questions. If you just want to keep it to games, we'll keep it to games. But obviously, as you see, I have no filter at all. Jen has a bit of a filter because she still won't let me tell the story of uh, <laughs> post Nintendo. Yeah. But um, yeah, keep them coming. Questions at rado.com. Yeah. And we'll be back in a month or so. Uh, same Rado time, same Rado channel. And otherwise. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.